Hi everyone, it's Georgie from georgieskitchen.com. Let's just get right into it. Today I'm putting together my favorite ingredients to make an absolutely delicious off pie. It's definitely a favorite to many people. Make this pie once and you'll make it again and again and again. We start out by getting a bowl. And in this bowl, you'll first want to add one cup of no one cares. Then you're gonna wanna add just a dash of kiss my ass. After that, you're gonna need to add a little fuel. A good fuel just give the pie an amazing pop of color and flavor, don't skip it. And then we're gonna finish it off with just a pinch of blow me. Now all you gotta do is just toss everything to combine it, and that's really all there is to it. You'll want to let it sit for just a couple of minutes, and then shove it up your ass. If you enjoyed this recipe, give me a thumbs up below, and make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel for more recipes like this at Georgie's Kitchen. And remember, if you wait long enough to cook dinner, everyone will eat cereal. We ain't caring about your feelings, yeah Anytime, any place, you can feel it here Steven, then you out of space, so we clear the air Any topic, and it's safe, so just be prepared Don't assume, keep it straight, we might keep it fair The news, a page, we gon' keep it real If you tune in, then you sick for real We're Bluetooth, we took the red pill Every image in the video, talk about it Different views on the subject, we might talk about it At the end of the day, we just talking, homie Only me in the room, but it's like a party Introducing Steven Daniel, author, artist, all-around great fucking guy. Hello, out-of-placers. I apologize ahead of time for all the reverb or echo that you hear. Just finished moving to the new house and I haven't done any sound treatment yet. So please bear with me. I hope that you're having an awesome new year so far. And if you're not, no worries. You have the rest of the year to fix that. I hope that you got that awesome gift that you wanted, even if it was a toy. What the media has been saying, because this is what those were saying now. They were talking about millennials being stuck on reliving simpler times from their childhood. They started calling them the ones buying toys, kid dolting. You know what I find interesting about this is that when I was a little boy, I saw older men with the damn train sets or model cars that they build and grown women with the doll collection or even the dollhouse collection. And nobody said to them. They didn't even want to pass these things down when they died. But now the older folks and all these media fools are once again picking on millennials for spending their money on Lego sets or action figures and that, you know, makes them happy. I say leave us the fuck alone and let us enjoy our you miserable, lonely pieces of So listeners, if you are a grown person who bought a Lego set or something, share it with me. Like, like send me a pick on social media because I love that. I love when people find a way to bring joy into their lives. Gotta enjoy it. And don't get offended by those idiots. The reason why it's so hard for many of you to stay happy is because it's easy for you to get offended. If you want to make it easier to stay happy, then make it harder for you to get offended. For the touchy topic, I'm going to be talking about following your dreams. Brit talks about the Capitol riot chaos on what to Brit. Victor, who I didn't give a proper welcome when he debuted in the November episode. He is our new host amazing personality his audition was very entertaining and he didn't hold back i think he is a great addition to the out of place family it looks like he's going to be handling the interview portion of the show so we're going to get some cool guests 
on Out of Place now, thanks to Victor. The show is called The Victor James Luke Arin Show. You should check out his first segment on Out of Place, which was in November last year. The episode is called The Adventures of Ducky and the 511 Boys. In this episode, Victor interviews Jonathan Ott, a passionate filmmaker out of Kentucky who is currently filming a dark comedy thriller called Bluffing that sounds absolutely amazing. Sammy talks music and lay motifs on the boombox. And Alex Hopper gives us local and international news on Across the Circus. So grab your favorite drink and enjoy the episode. Time to get touchy. Get ready to be triggered. Sensitive topics. Oh, look, they're about to cry. All consensus, we'll see. Nobody likes a snowflake. What is Steven's problem today? Just keep going. Find that thing you love because it's tough work. Uh, and my father gave me this advice when I said I wanted to be an actor. He said, have a backup profession like welding. But I think if you can find that thing that really gives you joy, that'll be it. Because uh, for me, it's always been comedy and stand-up and, and acting, too, because of exploring behavior. But it's tough work. But it's, And if you can get it, even better. Good luck. Follow your dreams. You've heard it a hundred times. If you put your mind to it, you can do anything. But then life gets so chaotic and suddenly your dreams feels unreachable. Probably thinking it's not worth pursuing that dream anymore. People tell you that you have to be more realistic. Instead of being on the defense, you start believing that bull. Well, it's time to stop thinking that way. It's time to get off your ass and do something. And yeah, it's going to be that type of segment this episode. The world has been too nice to you because you might get your feelings hurt while at the same time, you're depressed as because of that same world. I'm here to not be your bitch friend that keeps you down. I'm here to get you off your ass and start following your dream. The hell with the excuses. Screw the people who always second guess you. You sit there hoping to be the next big thing, but you don't do shit. Expecting things to just say, hey, you're great. Let's hire you. There are hundreds of people wanting to do the exact thing that you want to do, but you think you're hot shit because nobody had the balls to tell you the truth. What truth? That you need to work hard to improve the skill. Work hard to make stuff happen. Your dreams will not magically happen because that's what you believe. I see so many people, especially actors and actresses who want to be celebrities. Then you ask, how many auditions did you do last year? Maybe five? Five should have been the number in one week. But once they get a couple of rejections, they give up entirely, still hoping to get that big job. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter what you're into, whether you want to write a best-selling novel, become a great filmmaker, become a movie star, or to start your own bakery shop. No matter what you do, you have to work hard at it. There is no such thing as an overnight success. It only seems that way to people who don't pay attention to what you're doing. Steven, I'm, I'm too old to follow my dreams. I can't do that anymore. Shut the f*** up. Did you know that Harrison Ford at 30 was a carpenter? Vera Wang didn't design her first dress until she was 40? Even Captain Crunch joined the Navy at 50. <laughs> All I'm saying is that you youngins is running around here trying to be somebody when you don't even know who you are yet. You know what happened to Oprah at 23? She got fired. Yeah, well, that was a mistake. No, it wasn't. Because she wasn't Oprah. She was just some 23-year-old punk who needed to get fired so she could become Oprah. 
Sometimes you gotta fail to succeed. Samuel Jackson was in his 40s when he became an A-list superstar. Brian Cranston was also in his 40s when he starred in that popular TV show. Jane Lidge was in her 40s with the Glee success. J.K. Rowling's was in her 30s before the first Harry Potter book was published. Walt Disney was almost 30 when he created Mickey. There are way, way more examples for me to list, but I'm not going to do that. But the point is that it's not too late. So many of us get discouraged because we only go after things that we think makes the most sense to do. It often feels like it doesn't seem practical. It seems impossible. First, you have to plan out your dream. And you already most likely did that when you first started thinking about it. Your dream may seem impossible to achieve, but listen to me. It is only impossible if you believe that it's impossible. We all have a limited amount of time on this beautiful earth. So if you know what you want to do, it's time to start working towards it. Don't give up so easily. We live in a world full of so many distractions. And following your dream requires you to be disciplined. Many people's problem is that they dream big, which is great, but they end up putting all of their eggs into one big ass giant basket. And as soon as it becomes too difficult or they get rejected, that's it. Done. You have to start with setting small goals. Those big goals that leads to the ultimate dreams will be reachable when you start small. Let's say you want to write a book. You don't have to force yourself to write 1,000 words a day and be done with the book in a couple of days or weeks. It takes time. If you try to do too much at once, you will get discouraged. But if you set small achievable goals, your dreams will come true. Steven, what about the support? I need support. Not enough people believe in me. Support. Trust me when I say this, you don't need any body to help you get to your dreams. That is the cold hard truth. People, and this includes family and friends, but some people don't want you to believe in your dreams. Why? They don't give a shit. They have their own lives to deal with. Then you got the toxic ones that are jealous and just awful. But the thing that hurts, is not even those toxic fuckers. We expect that from them, right? To be toxic. It's the loved ones that say they believe in you, but don't really do anything to support you. This is what a simple support can do. In the clip you're about to hear, there is money involved, but you don't need to give money to support. But check out Mario Marante's vid that I saw on TikTok. So it's Christmas. Um, I'm all alone. It's just me and my little dumbass tree. My wife left me, so here I am. But of course, my mom sends me a bunch of gifts. And, uh, you know, I got one of those, like, overly supportive moms. Like, if I was in jail, she'd be like, I send him cookies every week. He's such a good inmate. Like, she wouldn't... Anyways, she she's, we just got off FaceTime, and uh, I'm opening her gifts. And, you know, she, uh, she sends me some Super Mario socks and some Batman stuff and, you know, just the little things, and uh, which is nice. And then um, she sent me this. And it's a it's an Amazon uh, gift card, and it's uh it's it's got money on it. And she said, "I want you to go um, buy some stuff to uh, keep making TikToks." And I'm so proud of you. And um, I want you to go buy some things so you can make your little videos. And uh, you know when you realize that you're just a really son. Oh, God, what is happening? Oh, God, I don't cry. 
Um, but she, uh, she comments on all my videos and, um, anyways, this just made my whole Christmas and, um, I used to delete her comments off my videos cause I'd be like, mom, this is embarrassing. Like, what are you doing? And, uh, I couldn't be prouder and I'm so lucky to have such an amazing, oh God, what is happening? What? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so lucky to have such an amazing, amazing mother. And I can't, I'm going to take this mom. I'm going to give myself a tripod and um, some props and some wigs and just all sorts of to make, keep entertaining you guys. But I, this is long overdue. I just wanted to say thank you, mother. Um, thank you. Um, I love you to death. Oh, God, what just happened? Oh, wow. But Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, man. Moms are awesome. Uh, Merry Christmas. I'm going to... Anyways, follow me. I'm pretty funny. Wow. I don't cry. I don't cry. I'm a man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love you all. Merry Christmas. I wish everyone who is just as passionate with the dream gets that type of support. Hey, I got this idea for this or for that. Or I'm thinking about pursuing that thing. Many of us... After we tell them that, we get this instead. Oh, that's nice. Let's make it about me now. Are you good at it? I know someone that tried that. <laughs> it didn't work out. That's not a real job, though. Isn't it like a hobby? And the one that family members have said to me, and probably more than likely to you, can you make money doing that? The last one is big with the parents, and they wonder why their daughter or son are unmotivated and still living with them. Those parents do nothing but complain about their kid not launching. My daughter doesn't do anything but sleep and be on social media all day. My son doesn't do nothing but drinks or smokes and game all day. My kids don't do anything around the house. They don't want to work. I don't know how to fix my kid. Hey, parent that has this mindset. Your kid is this way because of the you did. Your voice is playing over and over and over in his or her head. He or she has trouble finding their own voice. Absolutely terrified because anytime they express their own voice or talk about what they want to do, boom, you undermine. Boom, you start lecturing and telling your kid what you want them to do that can fit your life. All roads lead to the parent. They show no support. It's the truth. Of course, parents, especially the Gen X, will deny and become extremely defensive. They don't have a clue what they did to their kid and why that kid never followed their dreams. I don't think they mean to hurt us, though. I don't think they do it on purpose. I believe that most do what was best for their kids, but they don't know how to express it in a healthy way. Someday, some of these people will wish they had treated you right. Trust me, that time will come. How do you deal with these people? First, you have to start thinking. Why the hell are they like this? My theory is that they are pissed that they did not fulfill their own dreams. So they're just repeating what was said to them that kept them down. Best thing I did to deal with them was just to block it all out and then surround myself with people who really wanted me to succeed and would be genuinely happy for me. Who you surround yourself with can make or break your ability to chase your dreams. People who want to see you win will always help you win. They will want to help make you better. They will want to help build you up. They are the ultimate believers. When you have that person in your life, your biggest fan, don't lose that person. Don't ignore that person. 
Nobody failed me. I failed me by thinking everybody in my life had the same loyalty. Now, what I want to do is to take you through my dream journey because I've dealt with all this bullshit. Use the number one excuse for not pursuing the dream career. Life happened. It all started in the 10th grade. My guidance counselor and my mom said that it was best for me to join something. I didn't want to do sports for three reasons. I'm short. I'm fat. And I don't like the sports politics because I will be kicked out of the team fast. I won't be able to handle roided out bitches with a small like that in sports. I would want to knock all their teeth in. So I didn't want to play in sports. Anyways. I saw that there was a TV production elective class available. They worked together after school, and I was told that it would help with college and stuff. So I signed up. I ended up loving it. I had so much fun doing the morning announcements, going to the events for free and filming them, editing it afterwards so that the highlights can be shown in the morning announcements. However, that is where I also learned about broadcasting politics. There was this named Lewis, and he was not good at it whatever he suck or asked he kissed the teacher always let him be the producer he listeners he was not good so many of us had awesome ideas that can make things very entertaining but we were all shut down because of the teacher and lewis we would lose competitions and stuff and they wondered why did we lose we're good then there was times that i finally got some of my ideas approved and then someone else would steal that idea and make it their own for example the one year anniversary of 9-11 the teacher asked for ideas i went up to him and said hey i got this buddy who was in jrotc and they're doing something special let me take the camera head over there and film them and as i was filming them shooting blanks out of a gun i was thinking what song should i play while this is happening and after filming i went right to where they had band and stuff and i asked if there were any students that can play the trumpet for me i needed someone to play taps many of you know the song but not the name this is what i wanted So one kid got up and said, hey, I got you. We went outside. I left the cap on the camera because I just needed to record the sound. And he played the song. I was walking back to the class and I saw that many groups of people around the school was paying tribute to the lost souls of Line 11. And I filmed it all. In editing, I decided to use Sarah McLaughlin's uh, Angel. And everyone loved what I did. At the end of the school year, the teacher said, hey, gather your favorite clips. And this little bitch picked that segment and claimed that she did it all. 
I was already tired of the classroom politics and didn't give a shit anymore, so I didn't bother with it. The next school year, right across the hall, was film studies. The guidance counselor told me about it because she knew what was going on and knew how much I wanted to entertain people. I loved that film class. We learned about script analysis, breaking down movies, learning about film eras. We learned about certain filmmakers like Alfred Hitchcock. I was on top of the world. I knew I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. I don't remember how it came to me, but there was a package to apply to a film school. It was Brooks Institute of Photography in California. I had to do an essay and all that, and I got accepted. Here I am, a junior in high school, already accepted into college. I wish I remembered what the hell I wrote in that essay, but it displayed my passion enough to get accepted. I started high and then reality hit me like a fucking bullet train. I don't know how it is today, but at that time, the only way to get a loan for a school was through your parents and my parents were not good with money. Not my father. Actually, he was more conservative with the money. It was a little bit better than the rest, but not my stepmom, not my mom, not my stepdad. The bank said, the hell no. I was devastated. I tried to do everything I could to get the loan myself, but bank after bank, they said no. Out-of-state fees and dorm fees was just too high. I was desperate enough to even think about living in a car throughout the school years. But of course, the parents, they didn't want any of that. And for a little bit, I was pissed at my parents because of their fuck up with money. I couldn't achieve my dream. But that was me being a sour bitch idiot. I was young. I didn't care. But man, I resented them for a while. Then in my senior year, an alumni came to the film class and talked about Full Sail. It's a film school near Orlando. I convinced my parents to do the tour, and I loved that film degree tour. I was at my domain there, but I hit the same roadblock. Now that school is a university, but at that time it was still considered a technical school. But what was expensive was not necessarily the degree, it was the housing. They don't have dorms. So you had to get a loan to live in apartments or studios or something outside of the school. And again, I could not get the loans. Now I graduated and still could not go to any school that had a good film department. All super expensive. I tried replacing it with other degrees, but I was never happy. I became depressed. All my life, people said that you could do anything. And here I am struggling to pursue a dream. I started thinking chasing the dream was only for people with money. What even pissed me off even more, people started thinking the reason why I didn't pursue my dream. They said that I was it was because of my high school sweetheart and I wanted to stay behind for her. But she was way bigger supporter than them. A few years had passed and my parents kept telling me that I needed to do something with my life. We argued all the time about it. They wanted me out of the house because at that time, that was the reality. You're an adult. Get the fuck out of the house. Finally, the opportunity to leave the house came when my wife wanted to get married and join the military. We got married in the courts and I moved out of the house as fast as I could. And that right there, as you can see, how the support from a family could have made a difference. Now, I don't wish my life away at all. I would never want anything to change. But sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I had gotten the support instead of the push to make as much money as I can to get out of the house. So let's fast forward. And now I'm working for a merchandising group at Home Depot in Seattle. I still had dreams of becoming a filmmaker. The plan was to do the military for a few years and use the money saved up to go to film school. 
I remember telling all my ideas to this one older coworker. He loved listening to my dreams and stories. One day he says something that has always stuck with me. He says, Stephen, all of your ideas are great, but you need to start on something already. One finished idea is better than a million of unfinished ideas. I was like, you're right. Shortly after that, we moved from Seattle, Washington to Key West, Florida, which is a big adult playground. We had three years left before I had to go to film school, so we had fun. Just look up Fantasy Fest in Key West, Florida, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Fast forward to when we we're supposed to get out of the military in 2012, and time for me to start planning to go to film school, and my wife ended up backing out of the plan because it was just crazy economy at that time. It was screwed under Obama. She was scared. I was scared. People were scared. People were getting fired. Our parents getting fired, and it was just crazy. And shortly after that, she was pregnant, and that's when I started seeing my dream fly away, and I gave up. Fast forward to 2013, my firstborn son is one year old. My father called me to check up on me and we ended up talking about my failed dreams. Then he said, Stephen, you need to stop. There is more than one road to the same dream. Pray about it and the answer will come. I didn't pray about it, but I didn't stop thinking about it nonstop. I was thinking about becoming an author, turning all my film ideas into books. And then I remembered what the co-worker said about that one finished idea. That is when I sat down and started writing Nightmare Lane. I read blogs from independent authors giving advice about taking it slow, that I didn't have to write thousands of words in one day. I just have to write just a little bit every day. Another author said I shouldn't worry about the details, people's names. So I just kept writing with all the errors up the ass. Many characters didn't have names. There was misspelled words and horrible grammar everywhere, but I just kept writing. I just labeled certain characters like a vampire girl, stuff like that. And like, like, like they went to the mall and, and in parentheses, I would say, you know, give details later. After two months, I was done with the rough draft and it was about 30 something thousand words. I was so proud of myself. Then it took another month to add all the details and it went all the way to 60 something thousand words. Then I edited three more times, which took two months to do. And then I was done. At that time, I was researching how to publish as an independent author. I read articles and blogs filled with advice. And one advice that upset me was, hey, go find someone to proofread it. Someone in your family, someone in your friends. And no one I knew knew how to do it or could do it. I hated hearing successful indie authors tell me, oh, my spouse was a proofreader, my parent, my sibling, my family member, my friend, my doctor. Here I am saying, ah, that, that must be nice. To pay for someone to fix all the grammar would have cost me over $3,000, probably more today. So I did the best that I could on my own. Then the other advice that pissed me off was about support. At first it didn't. I believed it. This is when I learned that people really don't give a shit. Your friends and family, they don't care. The advice I was given by so many authors out there was that when you publish your book, you got to get your family and friends to buy your book and give decent reviews. It will be the perfect boost that will attract more readers. Some authors were like, oh, I got 30 reviews, 30 people to buy my book. I got 20. Some people were like, I got 60 from my friends and co-workers and family. I was excited. It gave me the motivation to be like, oh, yeah, because I'm Hispanic. So I was like, we be popping babies like crazy. And I'm a divorced child. So so there are so many people. And out of everyone I knew, just three bought the book. I was a little shocked because many of them fed me the bullshit that they got my back. And it was all a lie. I started thinking that maybe I'm not good enough. 
that maybe they hated the damn thing. My mind was going crazy with assumptions, so then I started cutting them off. But now I've learned that they were just busy with their own life, that we were all alone, and then that we don't need any support to follow our dreams. I wrote a couple of more books that wasn't fictional like the first. They were more of a how-to books. The bad grammar and no support from family. I lost all motivation. I didn't want to write anymore. The motivation was gone. I played the NPC role. Just lived life and not to the fullest. It wasn't bad or anything. My marriage got stronger. We had two more boys. It was just a typical family story. House, kids, minivan. I accepted the cards I was given and chose to be happy. Chose to be the best dad I could be and support them above and beyond whatever it is they wanted to do. I didn't wait until teenagers to support them. My oldest, Nick, loves drawing like I did at his age. So we got him an artist shading pencils, drawing pads, color pencils, a nice case to put everything in, books to help him draw. I see him getting better and better every time he draws something. Like a week ago, we took him to Target to get a couple of things because the kids have behaved so well during the move by staying the fuck out of my way. But the oldest wanted one toy and one book he saw, which was how to draw Five Nights at Freddy's characters. And he is really good at it and loves showing me every drawing he did. The middle child, Nate, he's the engineer. He loves building stuff. I've learned when, when he built a whole scooter with a seat, with a handle that turns and a pedal that moves out of Duplos. And if you don't know what that is, it's Legos for babies. So we buy him all sorts of things for him to build from books to kits with gears to Lego techniques to connect. The older he gets, the more sophisticated the kits will be. The youngest, Christian, he is very creative. He's into stop motion films right now. Bought the app on the iPad that they share and just let him do it. We bought lights, background sets, and soon we want to buy the green screens and even that green screen glove thing. They love showing me all the stuff that he do. Why? Because they know I support their little asses above and beyond. I always make a big deal out of it. I do what I wish I would have gotten. I mean, I did get it from my father because he was always made a big deal about stuff and he would buy me all the stuff I needed to create. He encouraged the writing. He encouraged to create. He encouraged to draw. So I started praying. And the answer that I got was, hey, the reason why you didn't follow your dreams and, and that I had to experience all of that was because that is what I needed to go through to be the best dad for my boys. So then I took the role happily and I started getting that feeling that my boys are meant for greatness. And it starts with me supporting them like crazy. I published another book. Right after that, and you know, it's selling okay. It was the marriage book, but nothing with film, nothing with telling stories, nothing with entertaining people. Fast forward to 2019, I started thinking about starting a podcast. Too much of a pussy to start it myself, and I was trying to get a co host. People kept breaking their promises, and I gave up finding someone to do with. And then one night in January 2020, I dreamt of a big mother, a scary looking, just yelling at me to not be a. I'm yelling back, I'm not a. I'm not a and then the guy changed into a sexy ass woman with the eyes and just said just start the podcast I don't know what that dream was for but it stuck with me I woke up thinking what the hell am I waiting for I did a little research on getting started I had no clue what the fuck I was doing I pressed record on the mic that I had and I just talked no plan nothing Fast forward to January 2022, and with this podcast, I've written many 
scripts and skits. That's how I finally got that producer slash director kick. I've grown the out of place family with wonderful hosts over the years, met so many wonderful and talented people. But when I took my first solo trip in January and just by sitting and relaxing and unplugging from the world, I started thinking about the next phase of my life. I wanted to do something that will help me achieve my dreams, create something for my boys and take out of place to the next level. Something that doesn't require me to be super active on it. Like being a director would require so much time that I didn't have. Then it hit me. Become an executive producer. Find the money and use the money to fund film projects. I could still live the dream by telling stories and I don't have to be on set all the time. I flew back home and up until last fall, I had done a lot of research and planning and figuring out how I'm going to go about this. I started praying about it and suddenly the right answers started appearing everywhere on social media, during a sermon, a conversation with someone. I finally knew what I had to do and I had to start my own production company. So I ended up starting an LLC for a production company, bought the rights to the website name, did a trademark for it and everything. It's called Algid Productions. I've had that name for years that I'm like, one day my film company is going to be called Algid Productions. Alja Production is going to act as a parent company to four subsidiary companies. Of course, there's going to be more in the future. The four companies, I can't really get into the names and stuff because I still have to save money for all that business and copyright and all that. But I can tell you what they are. There's going to be a live action film company. I'm going to have someone oversee that department. There's going to be an animation company. That one I will be focusing a lot on. The first thing I'm going to do is bring Big Vinny and Lenny to life through animation. I'm going to animate Big Vinny and Lenny skits from the podcast to get a feel of how the audience reacts to them on YouTube. And, sh- and if it goes well, then we'll put even more money to create a series for them that could be on Netflix, Prime Video or something. Eventually, I want to create animations like the Arcane show on Netflix. The third company will be creating graphic novels. And the fourth is the Out of Place podcast. I put Out of Place under Algid so that it can get funded. I want to get to the point where Out of Place can pay all of my hosts and a voiceover artist you hear. Eventually, I will stop being the main host. So I want to get an editor to edit everyone's segments like I do now. I want to help pay for new equipment for the host. I would like to fund a yearly event, kind of like a work retreat where the host and the crew and can meet up and have fun. And as long as I'm in charge, more than likely it's going to be Orlando. Don't care. Anyways, I want to help pay for services that I paid now, like music and sound effects licensing. There are a lot more services I would like to get right now, but I can't because of money. I have gigantic plans plans for out of place. I even want a small corporate office for out of place that will have marketers, HR, outreach managers, uh, writers, editors, graphic designers, guest relation managers that can get the top guests, advertising managers, and people in charge of all that. As you can see, I have done a lot of planning and thinking and have been so very excited to share all of this with you. I'm ready. I'm ready for this venture. After I told my brother Mikey this, he said, it is the beginning of an era, and it truly is. I'm super excited. I know we will be successful because of what I've already done with Out of Place. Over the years, I realized that I have a gift for finding talent. 
that's going to help the production company. Another thing that I want to do is to help make people's dream come true. I worked really hard at making out of place what it is now. I do my best to sound as professional as it could be. But one of the things that I learned recently is that so many voiceover artists that I've casted have been putting it on their resumes. It got to the point where out of place is even showing up on IMDb. I want my production company to do what Rockstar does. Hire and cast unknowns. I've received great work because people are giving it their all on their way to the bigger jobs. I think of how college sports are always the most interesting because they want to play with the pros. The only way that I will work with someone famous is when someone that I've casted when they were unknowns really want to work with us again. Other than that, I will always hire indie creators. And it's not to save money. That's not the reason. It is for the passion. That is the secret to making great content. I remember seeing some special effect makeup artists creating some of the most scariest makeup I've seen during Halloween season. Hollywood doesn't hire people like that anymore. I would. And I'm talking everyone that it takes to work on a project. That means for the live action film company, it's the actors and the actresses, the directors, camera operators, screenwriters, editors, the DP, which is the director of photography for those who don't know, costume designers, hairstylists. People that work with prosthetics, sound mixers, sound engineers, choreographers, stunt coordinators, stunt performers, visual effects supervisors, art directors, production managers. These are set builders, set designers, prop masters. I will always act as an executive producer, so I'll need producers as well. I can list every job it takes to make a live action film. Just watch the credits of any movie. You'll see all the jobs. The animation department is similar to the live action one. Just add character designers and developers, storyboard artists, 3D modelers, model riggers. Those are the people who can make a 3D model and make them move and talk. And of course, the animators. They take the rig models and tell the story. And then there's the voiceover artists. And one thing I forgot to mention that's on the live action and animated films and also the podcast is music. I'm really big on supporting indie musicians. For the graphic novel company, I want to make comic book artists, manga artists, and graphic novel artists dream come true by bringing their books to life. There is so much talent out there and people competing to work on these types of projects. My target will be people fresh out of film school, independent creators that just want to play with the pros, people that are very passionate at what they do. Say what you will about Disney. There is good and bad. But when it comes to storytelling and making entertainment, Disney knows what the f*** they are doing. They have this great strategy that I love and I want to do the same thing. They don't do it as often as they used to, but when they do do it, it works. Because the people at the top, corporate people, they don't give a f***. They don't. But here's what they do, right? When they greenlight a project, they give the nerdiest, creative, and passionate person they could find for that project. They give that person a budget and tell them, go do your thing. Look at the Marvel Universe. Why did it work? Why was it badass? Kevin Foggy, the walker in charge of the whole thing, is a comic book nerd. Look at the movie Encanto. That movie is known not because of the message or the visuals. No, it's the music that hired Lin-Manuel. He did great. And he also delivered on Moana. Then you look at the other franchises and the other networks and they start strong and then it gets canceled because it went bad. Or it started horribly and they get canceled right away. Other studios, I don't. for some reason, they haven't picked up on this yet. And I don't know how they don't see it. 
Well, I know. It's just most of them are too focused on getting all the woke checkbox marked off than focusing on a good story. That is one thing Alger Production will always do. Tell a good story. We will have representation of every kind, but a story will always be the focus. We will never bend the knee. We will never go full woke. We are currently living in an awesome era of entertainment. Look at the high-budget fantasy television shows and movies. Look what they did with Game of Thrones and Star Wars. But this is what pisses me the fuck off about all this shit. Many of these awesome movies and shows are bad. And I hate the reason why they are bad. Because it doesn't make one sense to me. They look good, right? The sets, the costuming, the CGI, it's state of the art. The casting is great most of the time. The music is also great. The problem is stories. The people in charge forgot that those stories are supposed to be just as good as it looks. When you got something that is based on a great looking story, why does it have to be changed? I never understood that. I'm always asking, don't they want to make money? Let's take The Witcher, for example. All they had to do was look at the books. That's what I pictured, you know, somebody that pitched it. They were like, hey, let's take this book. Let's take this franchise and put it on Netflix. It's beloved by millions. And, and, and make sure you study the book. Make sure you study the games. And the franchise has already built fan base. We can make so much money that we can wipe our asses with $100 bills. But what happens is that the people in charge, they come back and say, ah, no, we got a better idea. How about we forget about all of that and we do our own thing to make sure it has diversity? They think that they could tell a better story than the one that made that franchise popular. And it drives me nuts. Anyways, like I said, I want to do what Disney has done. I want to let the creatives create. Let the nerds be nerds. Let those people who are passionate shine as bright as they could. This is how I would get great entertainment. This is why I believe Alger Productions will do great. Let's wrap this segment up. Chasing your dreams is one of the best ways to live a successful and fulfilling life. No one in this world but you can decide what you need to do with your life. Want to choose an easy route? That's fine. Just make sure you do the best to be happy and live life smiling. Or maybe you could just head in and face all of the challenges to make that dream come true. Following your dream is about becoming our true selves. Whatever you are passionate about, whatever you want to do, you are born to do that thing. It's time to show the world what you can do. There are many people that don't know what they want to do or know what they want to be, so they just go with the flow and accept whatever it is thrown in their path. But you know what you want to do. You know what you want to be. It sometimes seems so very hard or even possible to get what you want, but you have to keep pushing forward. Choosing to make your dreams a reality will not be an easy thing to do. The journey will have so many detours and distractions, but you have to keep moving. Moving forward. If you feel stuck or unmotivated, revisit your vision board, go over your plans, find inspiration on social media, blogs, books, podcasts, anywhere. I remember a while ago on social media, I saw this clip that motivated me to keep pushing forward. It said, you always hear that you got to get in the foot and through the door to open up another door till you get to your dream. And for some people, it is that easy. But for some of us, it's not. You have to keep opening doors. And sometimes you have to get your foot through the door and actually walk through the door. Then it takes you down a hallway. Then you got to take the third door on the right that leads to another hallway that leads to another hallway that leads to a stairwell that leads to another door and another door and another hallway to an elevator to a hallway to another staircase all before you get to that final door just keep pushing 
You only have one life. So why not go after your dreams and make the most of it? Always remember that your age doesn't matter. You are older and you feel it's too late. No, stop it. It's not too late to achieve your goal, to make your dream a reality. You're not a failure because you aren't famous or rich before you could legally drink. You're not too old to make it. You did not miss your chance. Following your dream, it, it requires patience. Patience is the key. Your season is here. This is your year and you will see that it was worth the wait. It's not too late. It's time to find your purpose. It's time to showcase your passion. It's time to do something that will bring you joy. Never lose hope. Just when you think it's all over, God will always come through. Satan's biggest fear is for you to become what God created you to be. This is why he had done everything, Satan, in his power to make you lose focus. I feel great right now because when I started getting my shit together, I realized that it required a level of honesty that is hard to explain. But I tell you, there was this great feeling when I realized that I was the only one that had been holding myself back this whole time. Many of you will say that you don't have time to follow your dreams, but I guarantee you do. You know how to do it. Instead of binge watching a show or movies, instead of always being glued to the phone and browsing social media for hours, I worked on the podcast. I worked on my dream. You spend probably an easy two hours just doing things like that, but I would spend it on writing, on planning, on networking, on podcasting. Even just one hour a day would make a, a, a difference. Remember, you got to surround yourself with people that will bring the best out of you. The people that you surround yourself with should be an asset to your life, not a burden. You're going to outgrow people when you start focusing on yourself and on turning your dreams into a reality. You have to stop being scared to lose people who do nothing for you. People with negative minds will never help you live a positive and fulfilling life. Unsupportive people listen to you to reply. Supportive people will listen to understand. It sucks to have to think this way, but it's dangerous to have jealous people around you. They look at you as a competition while you look at them as family and friends. I spend most of my life believing that I never did enough for people when I didn't get the support, but I've learned now that I've been doing way too much for the wrong people. I have people in my life that would clap for me, but not too loud. They would want to help me out, but not enough. Those are fake relationships. Those are fake friends. And the funny thing is that those people will never amount to anything. Don't let them stop you from being happy. I realize that the older I get, the less I care. Drama, fuck off. Losing friends and connections with family. See ya. What's that saying? If it's not directed, it's not respected. Surround yourself with right people that will boost you up. People that motivate you and you yourself need to show support too. That's what I do. I act like their biggest fan because I'm actually am their biggest fan. You got to support your friends and family the same way you do for a celebrity that they don't even know you. If that person starts a music career, listen and share their music on social media. They start a nail salon, get your nails done there. They start making cookies, buy their cookies. Retweet their business and their posts. It would be the best thing you could do for them. One of the big things I learned by producing the Out of Place podcast is inspiring others. You will be surprised by who's watching your journey and being inspired by it. Don't give up. Without even realizing it, by me following my dreams, I am being watched. 
There are people now, and I'm not talking about my boys. I'm talking about people who listen to this podcast or have worked with me on the podcast, but they have let me know how motivated they are by what I do. Many of them have given me happy tears when they tell me some profound things in person or in an email or a message and how inspired and motivated they are. I love to see other people succeeding happy and following their dreams i truly believe that our lives can be a fun journey and not a big competition following your dreams shows others out there that they can do it too it helps others take a step to make their dreams a reality too because now they know they can do it just like you and become way more confident than before Listen, the reality is that no one gives a fuck about what you do. Once you understand that, it fully will change your life. Many of you are scared to follow your dream because you're afraid of what someone is going to think of you. And I'm telling you, people don't care. Another thing that I forgot to mention is money management. Many people refuse to budget and complain that they're underpaid and that there is no money to invest in their dream job, but more than likely you're sitting there with a cup of coffee that cost around $5 instead of making it at home. Then at the end of the month you complain, oh, I don't get paid enough. I don't know how we can live with these conditions. It's all Trump's fault. Well, you're walking around with the $800 phone with $300 shoes and a $5 cup of coffee. No one is underpaying you you have poor money management manage your money better and you'll find that funding you need to get started it's not easy but it's doable last year i wanted to buy a ps5 but i got a new badass mic instead i wanted to buy annual passes for the disney parks now that i knew that i was moving back to the east coast but i did the llc for algae productions instead and i bought a plug-in for the dolls system that i use to edit the podcast so they could sound better it came down to priorities If you're in your late 20s, all the way up to the late 30s, it will seem super tough to follow the dream. You're dealing with your parents getting older and falling apart. Your friend group has gotten smaller because you don't care for that bullshit anymore. Finances are tough. You struggle to be motivated at work and your health is probably and then you're overthinking or even depressed. But you got to hang in there. You've got this. It's tough being an adult nobody tells you and explains to you that you're gonna have to parent yourself and what do i mean is think of all the that you didn't want to do as a kid why did you do it is your parents made you do it now that you're out of the house you have to force yourself to do all that bullshit this is the same for following your dream you have to force yourself to get off your ass to get what you want i hope that i've motivated you enough to go out there and follow your dreams it's your year it's your time to shine you got this Get off your f***ing ass, stop coming up with excuses, and make that dream into reality. Like Shia LaBeouf said, just do it! I'll leave you with something I saw on social media about fear. Fear has two meanings. Forget everything and run, or face everything and rise. The choice is yours. Listeners and dreamers, keep moving forward. show where you'll see that your mom's a holy moly you won't learn anything except moaning on your neighbor's ring that's what you get when you listen to what the brick you'll realize that we're all just pieces of shit too blind with poopy rats on his ass me why i'm so high drop the pants and show off your big giant ballroom use it the place where we can all play together forever and ever here is brit sitting on the beach Since the dawn of the 2016 elections, 
We've heard an overwhelming amount of moaning from the general public about fake news. We all knew it existed, but it wasn't so popular to scream out about until Trump ran for president. I think back to the stories about the pink slime that was being processed into McDonald's chicken nuggets. Ugh. Or during the Gulf War, where there was this testimony by the daughter of a Kuwaiti U.S. ambassador, which led to the spreading of the news that there was these Iraqi soldiers that were removing babies from incubators and just leaving them there to die. This gut-wrenching testimony is what prompted the U.S. to actually go into Kuwait and help them fight against the Iraqi invasion. And it's also the reason why my dad didn't exist for the first couple years of my life. He was deployed in Kuwait, and he missed a lot of those little milestones, you know, me walking and learning to talk. You know, no big deal, just all on the precipice of a lie, because that actually never happened. It was all just hearsay. According to Philip Knightley, a British war journalist, the first casualty of war is actually the truth. We must be skeptical, because some disgusting tactics can be used to get us ready for battle. After all, who wants to give a Nazi the time of day to explain themselves? So here's the thing. I've been keeping something kind of secret for the last couple years, and I'm starting to feel safe about talking about it. I'm thinking that I might be kind of in the clear to say my side of the story. And I'm pretty sure no matter what I say, the history books are going to be wrote down inaccurately, that all of these people were ready to burn the world to the ground. You see, I went to D.C. to visit some friends from college to celebrate New Year's, and I had about a week planned out. This was during the the January 6th Capitol riot time period, but to me, it was just a vacation. But since I was in D.C., me and my friends, we thought it would be pretty interesting to observe some of the modern heterics in action, and we went out in the streets near the Capitol. It was pretty busy, but what we found was a bunch of old, tacky white people wearing silly hats, you know, the kind you'd buy overpriced at a carnival. The streets were plagued with patriotic colors. Old, soulful church hymns were being sung like, Glory! Glory to the Lord! And I could have sworn that it might have been the 4th of July, but it was freezing. It was like 40 degrees. And I heard some occasional chatter about, we got to be out of here by 5 p.m. curfew. And uh, we need to set a good example for these unions. You know, they don't know how to follow the rules. Law and order, law and order. And I'm just kind of laughing because it reminds me exactly of my grandpa, who was not there that day. So a few hours into the day, I find myself being ushered into the Capitol. And I thought to myself, when in Rome? And I look at it as an opportunity to get a free tour. The Capitol Police held the doors open for me and the rest of the crowd. And I thought, yeah, this is pretty cool. I mean, I I didn't expect this to be what was happening today. So I gave the Capitol Police a salute, similarly to the people that I was trailing behind. You know, I I wanted to blend in. I already wasn't quite wearing the right clothes, but, you know, I didn't really stick out too much. And I saw a bunch of boring, some tacky monuments. There's some beautiful paintings that I will never appreciate. It just looked like kind of a study hall, something that really just didn't stand out for my taste of art. So I was glad that I didn't have to pay an entrance fee or make a reservation. And to be honest, we were packed like sardines, like everybody was going in and nobody was stopping us. But it didn't feel like violent or unsafe. You know, it wasn't like the World Festival. You know, nobody was getting trampled. It was just, you know, a bunch of old people walking, squished together. No Black Friday. And it was at a snail's pace. I didn't see anything climactic. But around that 5 p.m. curfew, I head home. But when I returned to my friend's house that evening, I was surprised to hear that there was all this violence that was said to have occurred.
heard. I saw photoshopped images of war zones with like UFOs and a bunch of sci-fi stuff. Like we were releasing Area 51 top secrets and everyone had guns out. You know, there was this weird guy with like horns on his head that just seemed like he was at the wrong party. But other than that, it was like mostly old people. And everything that I was reading about, it didn't feel like the place that I just came from. I mean, people actually believe this stuff? Well, I guess they do. In the following days, I learned about five people who died as a result of the violence that occurred in the Capitol that day. Only one of them actually seemed legitimate, but who am I to say? That victim? Her name was Ashley Babbitt. She was this 35-year-old Air Force veteran from San Diego, California. She had been shot by Capitol Police fatally while attempting to enter a restricted area. This won't be considered as police brutality, right? Another victim, victim number two, Kevin Greeson. He was 55 and from Athens, Alabama, and he had a heart attack during the protest. Later, he was pronounced dead in the hospital. In a statement from his family, they said, Kevin had a history of high blood pressure, and in the midst of the excitement, he suffered a heart attack. As simple as that, right? Like, this stuff happens all the time. Or there was victim number three, Benjamin Phillips, a 50-year-old man from Ringtown, Pennsylvania. He died of a stroke sometime after the protest. He was said to be this upbeat Trump lover who's now probably rolling over in his grave knowing he's being used as a number in the death count that goes against his almighty hero. Victim number four, Roseanne Boyland, not to be confused with Roseanne Barr. She was a 34-year-old woman from Kennesaw, Georgia. She died after the protest, but it was said to be because of medical issues sustained during the protest. This girl overdosed from some kind of amphetamine. Can you really blame that on what happened at the Capitol that day? Or was this just bound to happen? Number five, and, and lastly, Brian Sicknick. Isn't that last name Sicknick Attell? Like he was volunteered as tribute for this particular moment in time. Sicknick was one of the Capitol Police officers. He was 42 years old and from South River, New Jersey. Confusingly, he is still included in the death count, despite despite Washington, D.C.'s chief medical examiner ruling his death to be of natural causes. I guess because he was at the Capitol that day, and he died right after. That's just enough to just go ahead and include him in, you know, why don't you? So, aside from Ashley Babbitt getting shot by the Capitol Police, there wasn't actually any violence that led to somebody dying. But that's not what the public is being told without having to scrape through all the information. You know, this isn't what's getting reported on general news. So, I'm now speaking about my uneventful time there in a defensive manner. Also, how bad of a riot could it have really been if they were still able to finish certifying the election results that same night? I don't support Trump by any means. I didn't even vote in the 2020 election. However, I'm not suggesting that there wasn't any kind of election meddling. I think that's just like the nature of any election. Like it must happen regardless. Like, you know, in any election, there's got to be some kind of how do we guarantee the win? But there's this electoral college. So, you know, even if some of the popular votes got changed, it's not like the public opinion really has that large of an impact. I mean, I don't even care. It sucks kind of seeing history be wrote wrong and everyone just kind of going along with it. So happy two years to the largest treason event that will go down in history that never happened. And happy 2023. May all your dreams come true.
Welcome to another episode of Vajalas. We have a wonderful, awesome, fantastic guest star today. I'm Jonathan Ott, based out of Louisville, Kentucky, aspiring filmmaker. I guess I, I can just say I'm a filmmaker. I'm making a film. You, you're, yeah, just say you're a filmmaker. You're, yeah, you are a director. It, it's happening. It hasn't happened past tense. Well, no, it has. It's happened. I'm, I'm getting legalistic. Yep. Yeah, it's happened. It's you happened. Are. I'm a filmmaker. Done. You're up and coming filmmaker. Yeah. 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 I'll take that. Because you're, you're on your way up. Up and coming, renowned filmmaker. There we go. Nothing can stop me. I'm all the way up. Yes, you are an up and coming filmmaker in Louisville, Kentucky. That sounds really cool because it seems like Louisville's just been on the spot for a lot of aspiring artists like Jack Harlow and I don't know who else. Yeah, Nicole we Scherzinger. The pushy cat dolls. Just push. Oh, right. I do love her. Um, I love her. I don't love her plastic surgery she got recently, but I do love her. I didn't see that. It's it's quite frightening. Oh, facial? Yeah. Not the fun facials, like right. the unfun facials. Hmm. Well, that's too bad. I'll have to check that out. But yeah, there's there's a club. There's a, there's a group of people who are from Louisville and who become famous, and it would be nice to be in that group. They all end up leaving, which is kind of funny. I guess there are probably some exceptions, but well, my you- morning jacket doesn't reside here anymore. But that seems to be a lot of people's favorite example of someone who made it here. Okay. Okay. And, right. and for good reason. They're great. What genre would, would that be? Oh, that's a good question. There's some variation of folk, I suppose. But I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for even saying that. I don't know. Why Why would you get in trouble? For people saying- are... People are really, they take their genre classification very seriously, especially, I think, in the folk world. The stomp, the, what's he call it? The stomp music? Well, it's not stomp and holler. And that is, that is some sort of bastard of folk music <laughs> that is unfortunate. And now I will, child. now I am getting myself in trouble because it's, it's popular. I don't know, but who cares? Yeah, it's the, it's well, so the, is heroin, so. Right. <laughs> right. Mumford and Sons. <laughs> Is a lot like heroin. No, they're probably the most popular version example of Stomp and Holler. And, and the, you know, that name perfectly summarizes what identifies them and what also makes them terrible, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I hate the total lack of nuance in the four on the floor, let's stomp every single rhythm out. You know, and every song sounds exactly the same. It's the same. It's like, we're all going to stomp. <laughs> And we're all going to holler. I just keep thinking, like, it's just a group of chads. Like, their name is Chad Chad. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they all look like the exact generic cookie cutter versions of themselves with just different skin. Know what they feel like? What they Metaphorically, feel like? you ever play, like, those old arcade games from, like, the 90s and, like, the aught 2000s and characters you have not unlocked yet? Okay. are just silhouettes and they all kind of look alike which is oh, like okay. differences yeah that's what it feels like they're still silhouette but form they're still silhouette form okay. and then when you unlock them you're like oh cool this gonna be a brand new character and no and then it's like nothing it's nothing like the silhouette it's just this <laughs> generic bland version of stuff you're like how yeah you're definitely on your way up to the louisville kentucky anna kentuckian kentuckian mm. famous 
Well, we'll see. I mean, this is my Hail Mary. This is my uh, big effort to see if I can get people to give me enough money to keep making movies. Because this one is self-financed as of yet. We're going to do some fundraising. But the idea is, you know, this is the only time we should have to pay for it with our own money. Money. So, all right, you got this film going on. This is your first actual full-length feature film. That's right. And you are both the writer and director? That's right. Okay, so what is this shit about? Because I know it's about, but these people don't know it's about. Okay. What is your movie about? And let's let's actually start diving into this. Okay, let's see. Yeah, I'll don't give be you afraid kind of the to elevator like, pitch. Uh, if you want to smoke more pot, go uh, ahead, smoke yeah, more pot. It's happening. It's happening. Um, we got some Adderall. I got some cocaine. Well, you know, no. you know I've, I've got some um, some Mumfords and Sons. Just you know, for get high on that. Yeah, put that down. <laughs> Cocaine and stomping holler is a good marriage, I will say. You you need uppers for all that stomping. <laughs> so elevator pitch. Basically, you have a game of chicken between a husband and wife as they keep daring each other to go further and further to see who can go farthest in planning and subsequently executing a murder, something neither one of them has ever attempted before. It's kind of a a game of who's bluffing, who's lying, who's telling the truth, and the audience will have to do some of that work as they go along to sort of figure that out. But anyway, it's called Bluffing. It should be available... I'm hoping by Halloween next year, 2023. That's the release date. If things go really well, it's possible that it could be released in some form next summer. And of course, I don't even know what being released means other than being published on Amazon, having a local screening. They were going to probably try to do a uh, film festival circuit, see where that goes. But in terms of just finishing the film, I hope that it's done by next summer. By next summer. 2023. Wonderful. So how'd you get the idea for bluffing? The idea came from actually three movies that I watched in a row, and they each had a pretty significant influence on how the story shaped up. The movies were piercing, and unfortunately, I don't, I don't even remember who the director is, but it's got Christopher Abbott and Wasikowska. I have Mia. No, Mia Wasikowska. Isn't she a porn star? No. No, that's Mia Khalifa. I don't know who Mia Khalifa is. I promise. You should, you should, <laughs> I mean, you could just porn, porn yeah. hover. Okay. I'll check she, her out. She's an author now. I don't know if she wrote the oh, book, but apparently she's on love. I think it's on sex. Okay. Probably. That would make sense. How sex. Stick to the, write what you know. That's yeah. What yeah. Write what you know. Right. Write what you hoe. Write what you hoe. <laughs> write what you hoe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So continue. It feels sort of like a play. It almost could have just been a short film, but I'm glad it's not. And it's this fun little kind of, it's, it's like real time as this guy picks up a prostitute and plans on killing her. So it's a psychological dark comedy, actually. About killing sex workers. Yes. So uh, that definitely played a significant role in the formulation of some of the backstory when it comes to my movie. The second film was Windfall. That was Jason Siegel, Jesse Plimpton, and what's the girl who's in Emily in Paris or something? What's that show? Emily. Lily Cole, right? Nope, that no. You know, that's the wonder of having yeah, Google yeah. Lily Cole on hand. A, yeah. Lily Cole, let's see, Emily in Paris. She's a supermodel. She was in Parnassus. Lily Collins. You Lily were close. Collins, okay. You were very close. Lily Collins. I've only seen her in a couple of things. I saw her in the um The Last Tycoon TV series, which was not very good and it got canceled for I'm good about to say I'm there. I don't know her. 
So Lily Collins, people seem to know her, talk about her a lot, but I've really only experienced her in a couple things. And Windfall was one of them. She's really good in it. But it's a slow burn. It's real time. It feels kind of like a play. It's three people in one location. And it's pretty funny. And it ends... Well, I don't want to give anything away, but basically you you can see a trend, uh, a theme going forward with these two, and you'll definitely see it in the third one. Destination Wedding, Winona Ryder, Keanu Reeves. The whole thing is a conversation between two people in several different locations. Uh, not in real time. They jump forward in time, but it also feels like a play. It also has minimal locations, minimal actors. Okay. And so this was definitely a theme that was throughout all of these. And I was like, okay, this is possible. I can make a feature film on a low budget that I can afford as long as I keep my number of locations down, I keep my number of actors down. You know, I love movies that do that anyway. I love these movies that feel like plays that have all the glam and the glitz stripped down and it's just dialogue and acting and good framing, you know, good cinematography, but nothing flashy. Nothing flashy. Yeah. It's just raw, gritty drama. And it can be funny. A lot of the, all, all of them had funny elements mm-hmm. to them, all these three films. And so does mine. So yeah, these films struck a chord with me. I loved them and I could see how they made it a lot more possible to actually finance a film. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. I love how you say that all of these are raw and these are all just like pieces are set in the same room because that takes, that takes really good actors. It does. And then you said Winona Ryder, which is like, okay, yeah. And then Keanu Reeves until John Wick, he was literally the male version of Cameron Diaz. It's like talking to literally a cutout of Keanu Reeves and yeah. every movie. I am an FBI agent. I don't know. He may not be versatile, I suppose is what I want to say. However, when he's in the right role, he's phenomenal. And it doesn't hurt that he's a great person. Mm -hmm. That always, whether it should or not, it influences how much I like someone's acting. I want to know that they're good people. It Mm, kind of, it hurts when I find out they're they're not good people. I mean, no, that's a... And that's a a difference that matters between Cameron Diaz and Keanu Reeves. Is she not a good person? I haven't heard, I mean, you know, the Anna Faris character in Lost in Translation is supposed to be based on her. So it's not necessarily that she's a bad person, but that she's an annoying person and that she's maybe a bitch. And the story I hear of Keanu Reeves is entirely opposite that he's humble so down sad, to earth so sexy so sad, so sexy. keep going keep going yeah and when i found that out it really made me want to like him and then i had to admit to myself that in certain films i do really like him mm-hmm. like the matrix like he's great in that how about i give you the finger and you give me my phone call another example Knock, mm-hmm. knock. I haven't seen that movie yeah. and I really want to see that movie. I just feel like that's a movie I want to watch with some friends. Right. But I hear nothing but great things about Knock, Knock. Right. Also, it has Anna de Armas in it. Yes. Who is, who's and, actually, absolutely uh, one of my favorite actors. It's Eli Roth and it's Eli Roth's wife. Oh. Who I cannot remember her name at this moment, unfortunately. <laughs> but man, you want to see some pretty ladies in not very much clothes or actually completely naked that is the movie for you well i'm, I'm gay so i just mean it doesn't do it. it's like it's like westworld with me that doesn't look like anything to me doesn't look like anything to me if there's any fans out there looking for art and exploitation and a sexy movie at the same time knock knock
Knock knock. All right, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna stress the the art part a whole hell of a lot. I mean, it is Eli Roth. To him, art yeah. is literally like taking a shotgun, putting a canvas behind Kurt Cobain's head, and then pulling the trigger and yeah. calling it Courtney Love and putting it in an exhibition in New York. Okay. <laughs> That's just what he does. Is his wife Lorenzo Izzo? Yeah. Okay, so she's in stuff. She she's is great. She's in the Green Inferno. <laughs> she's in stuff. I haven't seen Green Inferno. That's a very good movie too. I. It's a great. What, what do you say? A love letter, homage to Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. See, I didn't love Cannibal Holocaust because I was just like, yo, really? if I wanted to see this, I would just turn on the news and look up that missionary that went to North Senegal Island. I don't know. I thought the whole package was pretty interesting. Like the porn star lead actor, he was pretty great. The soundtrack was in Eli memorable in Green Inferno uh, or, I, I, or Cannibal sorry, Holocaust. The Cannibal Holocaust. The synthy, disturbing ass soundtrack that is most notably going on whenever they butcher the turtle. Which that stuff that, was that rough. was real. That was I a know. real turtle. That poor turtle. And that turtle and, lived and I don't, hundred I don't some years. That at all, I really don't. And so you know, maybe living. maybe that makes me a hypocrite for saying that I like the movie because I can't really say that I want those parts out. Because those parts were really effective. And right. they stood out and it helped deliver the message, create the experience that the director was going for. So I may be a hypocrite. I don't know. That's a tough one. Usually my criteria in that regard, when you have an artist who's done something questionable or not, not even questionable, but just downright despicable, and then you're talking about the art that this person, usually a man, that they've created. Mm-hmm. And it's the question of, can you separate the art from the artist? I would say for the most part, yes. But my criteria a lot of times is, was any of the misbehavior that we're talking about, was that conducive to the art being created? In other words, was is the art a result of the abuse? Gotcha. Because okay. then that really makes it questionable. It's hard to separate the two. But if we're talking about something in the artist's private life, versus something unrelated that they published. You know, and of course, with art, it's always going to be somewhat intertwined. Right. But I find it hard to condemn outright, for instance, let's say Roman Polanski films. Why is it harder to condemn Roman Polanski? Roman Polanski? I Mm -hmm. thought it was Roman Polanski. Polanski. Okay. No, no. It's either I I like Polanski. That sounds... Sounds less criminally. <laughs> um, sounds sounds less pedophile-y. Yeah. Polanski. Polanski. I mean, that sounds like a skis ball who dresses in like the 70s typical <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer outfit. That Polanski boy. You always knew he was a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like Roman Definitely Polanski. has a mustache. He, he, yeah, he, Polanski. He enticed these girls with... I may have never said it that bit, that way before. I may be like putting on airs. I'm not sure. I like it though. Polanski. No, I say Polanski usually. I think that's right. Roman. Is it like Coven? Coven. Coven. <laughs> Coven. Coven. Yeah. But why is that less condemning to seek, I don't want to say justice, but to seek consequences or to feel some type of way about Roman Polanski versus let's say Kevin Spacey. Well, Kevin Spacey did just win those lawsuits. So we're, we're going to leave hmm. Kevin alone for yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah. That's a tricky thing too, because like Harvey we have a legal system and we are supposed to have faith in it, but most of us don't. But at the same time, I think most people would agree that we shouldn't just judge people by popular opinion. And yet that's what ends up happening a lot of times. And maybe it's 
for the good in a lot of situations. I mean, let's say, you know, you said Kevin Spacey just got off. Bill Cosby got exonerated for some of the stuff. He's not in jail anymore. He got released. He got released due to a legal loophole that was over. Okay, there you um, go. He apparently made a plea deal or something right. back like he like a decade, like decades ago. Right. Whatever the details of it are, I don't know off the top of my head. And I really don't want my Google search to be like, hey, do you want to hear more about Bill Cosby? It's like, (laughs) no, I don't want to hear about Buffalo Pill. (laughs) Don't eat the pudding pops. Yeah. (laughs) Or he'll put the pudding pops in you. Um, But why is it less jarring for Roman versus Bill Cosby just because the law doesn't work. Well, there's a few things. I mean, if we're just comparing them. Not comparing. But that brings up an interesting topic, actually, talking about Bill Cosby. For instance, I can't really enjoy the Cosby show anymore. Same here. Right. And that's a real shame because it's a great show. As far as I know, which isn't, I don't, I didn't read into it very closely, but I've never heard of any of his misbehavior his abuse, his Mm -hmm. rape, being conducted or having anything to do with the production of the show. From my understanding, there was not. I will definitely fact check that. Right. So um, by that standard, I should be allowed by my own standard to separate the art from the artist and still enjoy the show. And I still respect it. I think that if you know, somebody wanted to watch it, especially if they didn't know the whole context. And if it was a kid or whatever, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be opposed to showing a kid the Cosby show. There's nothing wrong on the Cosby show, but I can't enjoy it anymore, which is a shame. He ruined it for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. That I definitely understand. And I definitely agree with you on that sense. And what also sucks is that there were other people who gave their most famous performances over years long career, Malcolm Jamal Warner, for mm-hmm. instance, and Felicia Rashad. Felicia Rashad. And these people, you know, we cherish them, we cherish their work, and now we can't appreciate their most famous work anymore. Not because of anything they did. And that sucks. Personally, know? I think Malcolm Jamal Warner's most awesome performance yeah. was him helping OJ escape in American Crime Story. It was great. Yeah. As, um, I remember. Who was the... F- I don't remember. Oh, but my gosh. Um, yeah, I was excited about that casting. It was like, what, AJ, was it AJ Crawlings? Was that his name? Gosh, I don't know. I have no idea. You know, this is why we have Google. OJ Speed Chase. Yeah, I'll put that in Google. Yeah. Who, who helped OJ in the Speed Chase, but I don't want to put Bill Cosby in there. I always imagine like one day Ryan Murphy is going to make an American crime story. About Cosby? About Bill Cosby. Yeah. And have a scene from Silence of the Lambs where Bill Cosby is reenacting Buffalo Bill going like, would you me? Would you zip zop zoopity zop Now it has to And like happen. a silk like robe with like a bunch of like flamboyant like colors. Oh my God. Doing like the Cosby show, like, doing where he the, puts his head like his yeah. eyes up, going like, right, right, with like a Jello logo in the background. Yep. Has to no, happen. I, I have not um, with the white background, like the with, the opening of the show. Yes, with actually that hands, was just one season. <laughs> the jazz hands all around. Yeah, they go, that was boom. great. Silence of the fams. There we go. Silence of the fams. <laughs> yeah, time. and so that that goes back to Roman Polanski or really any director. It's difficult for me to get behind like just writing off entire films, like a Woody Allen film, for instance. Well, he married his stepdaughter, <clears throat> right? Right. But that was consensual. He didn't, to our knowledge, she grew up. And then when she became legal, yeah. then they started the thing. Yeah. Which yeah, is I still fucked up. That's the I official mean, story. Which is but still there's also up, the but. accusations from Dylan Farrow, Mia Farrow's daughter, his stepdaughter. She 
accused him of harassing her, of, of sexually molesting her. But he wasn't convicted. And Dylan's brother says that his mother was crazy and abusive and coached Dylan into believing that she had been molested okay. by Woody. So you've got that going on. It's, so it's, it's inconclusive. Yeah. It's like, messy. I have no idea. I don't, I mean, there's definitely something icky about Woody Allen's preference for much younger women. There's yeah, I, no doubt about yeah. that. And that does not paint him in a positive light when something like this comes forward. It's weird. Like when artists or actors or, you know, actually, you know, just say artists because acting is art. It's weird to me when you find out things about some of the biggest named artists of like their generations coming out with like this. Like, for example, I personally found out about Don Johnson when Django came out. What is his deal again? Don Johnson was... He was a lot older than Melanie Griffith. He's not a lot older than Melanie Griffith. Okay. But she moved in when she was 15. Oh, okay. He met her at 14. He was 20. She okay. turned 21. She moved in. And then they got married right as she turned 18. And I think she got pregnant like very shortly after. Right. Okay. So it's like if you move in with somebody like for three years, you know, and you're not just roommates, you're not being celibate. Right. And back then, apparently that was okay. Like Marie, sure. like Lisa Marie Presley and Elvis Presley. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, he had a thing for 14 year old girls. Right. And that was Errol Flynn. Yeah. And that's really, really gross. Michael Jackson. Did Michael do it though? Last I was, you know, in touch with the social justice. Well, at least in the popular opinion, it seemed it was against him. It was definitely against him. I mean, it's, I'm not going to um, lie. I would definitely. But I agree. Kids. I don't, I haven't looked into it. I don't know. I mean, there, there's a, apparently a very damning documentary that I haven't seen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was Oprah back at her bullshit again. There was damning confirmation that the documentary purposely added in false information to Oprah's, uh, who produced it to her. Harpo Productions. Oh. Yeah. So interesting. So to that, I'm like, see, it, it hmm, always gets complicated. Well, I'm just wondering, like, did she make that documentary because she really wanted to know what happened to those kids? Or did she make that documentary because that meme of when he starts singing like from 20 years yeah, ago? That's hilarious. <laughs> because she asked him about the kids yeah. and he wouldn't talk to her about it. Right. So he just started making music right there and ignored her. She might still be salty about that. I yeah. mean, we did see what she and Tyler Perry did to Monique. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you take that 50 grand that we gave you, bitch, and you go get us our Oscar. <laughs> um but back onto this, it is difficult to remove actors who've done or habitually do terrible things. Yeah, that's another difference. Um, I think I was going to say like some directors, for instance, have only seemed to have slipped up once versus like Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. We know made a habit of it, but maybe that's not even really that true. Maybe the ones that fucked up once fucked up a lot of times and it just hasn't been reported. It's probably more likely that it was a recurring thing. That is true. So like then let's let's talk about that because I think this is actually really interesting because you are a film director. So let's talk about that. We live in an era where everything anyone has ever done is documented. Right. Any 12-year-old with a cell phone could find out what you did. As a film director, like when does that line blur and when does it become a witch hunt versus actual justice? Like is there actual justice in this whole cancel culture to people in high paying positions? highly influential careers because for example on one hand there's not a single person i honestly believe in this world that has not done something heinous okay you know that now the scale of that is definitely different 
Mm-hmm. You know, some people, the worst thing they've ever done was bully somebody mm-hmm. in high school. And then they become a very nice person overall afterwards, mm-hmm. which is not to excuse bullying. I've been bullied habitually, but that's not in the same league as, OK, well, you're out here just drugging and raping women or men or you're committing murder or you're trafficking high levels of drugs. Mm-hmm. Like when does the line stop between what someone may have done? versus who they are in the future. Yeah. And I would even add to that question, because I don't know if I have an answer. Is there an end to cancellation? Is there a path to reconciliation or forgiveness? Or is it, no, you had one chance, you know, most people don't ever get to be famous. You were famous and you f***ed up. I don't know. I mean, I could see that point, but I don't think that's really the right way about it to go about it. I think that there has to be an opportunity for people to apologize and they have to be penalized. So I think it's fair that they get canceled literally in in terms of shows get canceled, specials, Netflix specials get canceled, whatever it may be specifically. There should be some real world repercussions. And that's not censorship. That's freedom of speech. Really, you're Mm -hmm. you have a company, you're allowed to say we don't like your image right now. We don't want you on our program. Right. So that's how it works. Freedom of speech. It's not that you get to say anything you want. And no one can give you guff about it. They get the same freedom to react to whatever you just said. So yeah, you might get your show pulled. But does that mean in, let's say, five years after the show blows over a little bit, or preferably after you have made some effort to apologize Mm -hmm. and right the wrongs, is there an entry point to potentially becoming a better person, a better person and being famous again? So for instance, like the Robert Downey Jr. I was about to bring up Robert Downey Jr., you know, he's America's, he's Iron Man. Yeah. Everybody knows Robert Downey Jr. He's, mm-hmm. He seems like he's a wonderful person. I would like to hang out with him. Oh, yeah. Well, he always seemed fun, even when he was a drug addict. He seemed like <laughs> I mean, he'd be a lot of that's fun. That's what got him in trouble. <laughs> he was right. having too much He's fun. charismatic as hell. <laughs> Not to the cops. <laughs> I'm sorry. <Yeah. laughs> um. But I, I like... Stories I hear about him, I like hearing that he helps out other actors who are struggling with addiction. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I love hearing stories about that in general. Like, I always loved the story of David Bowie helping Iggy Pop when Iggy Pop had just kind of become a, a joke and was falling down wasted at CBGB's every night. And David Bowie was like, this is a way too talented musician to be ending up in the gutter and he took him under his wing and he helped him get clean and he produced his next two albums i believe oh wow maybe three and they were amazing and it revitalized iggy pop's career i mean in my personal opinion it's the best stuff iggy pop was ever a part of lust for life and uh the idiot okay and then it got paid forward because david bowie sort of lost his way making uh station to station he became the white duke obviously i don't know this firsthand i've heard this from some rock journals you know, uh, you were just sitting in the Yeah, I, I was there, but I don't remember it too clearly. I was on a lot of drugs. Um, <laughs> but he was trying to be the white duke, and that meant he only ingested white things. And specifically... So he was trying to David Duke before David Duke? Yeah, sort of, yeah. 
but doing it in an androgynous alien sort of Bowie way. Very pale, very wafy. Very Tilda Swinton looking. Yeah. And uh, his diet consisted of milk and cocaine. And Turkish delights. And Turkish delights <laughs> and maybe white turkey. And that was about it. And he was probably dying. Well, yeah, that's what happens when you only have milk and, and cocaine. And cocaine. <laughs> so he wasn't going to last very long. And Brian Eno came along. And I don't know the specifics, but apparently he did for Bowie what Bowie did for Iggy Pop. He cleaned him up. And together they made three albums, um, okay. a trilogy of albums. I think it's called the Berlin Trilogy. Some of their best the, work. Wait, wait, pause. You said the Berlin Trilogy? Yeah, I, I believe it's called that. I find it amazing that this man, this person, because I don't know if he... I mean, he's a Brian very, Eno? No, 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 no. Uh, David Bowie. David he's Bowie. Very androgynous. Like, sure. They should yes. have Tilda Swinton play David Bowie and a David this Bowie. This is a good idea. Game, right. It's funny that he has an all white lifestyle mm-hmm. and then calls his next three albums the Berlin trilogy, considering, I mean, World War II was a yeah. very <laughs> real thing. Yeah. Well, you got to realize, too, um, this would have been in the time period when punk was repurposing, if you want to call it that, the swastika. So there was a lot of kind of flirting with iconoclastic images uh-huh. for the very purpose of shocking. And a lot of times they were, you know, politically couldn't be less fascist, for instance. However, some people still find it inappropriate to ever have a swastika, whether you're doing it just to shock or if you actually have fascistic politics. And I can understand that. I don't f*** with swastikas. I don't f*** with swastikas. Yeah. So. I swat away the swastikas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, paying it forward. I like celebrities helping out other celebrities. Terrence Howard as he probably needs a Robert Downey Jr. to come in and be like, hey, man, you okay? Claims that he was the one who pushed Marvel to hire Robert Downey Jr. Ah, okay. Because remember, Terrence made more money on Iron Man 1 than Robert, then got fired because apparently he's an asshole. Yeah, I remember hearing yeah, about this. That's when they hired Don Cheadle, which personally, I was hoping it wasn't going to work out with Don Cheadle. So they okay. would hire another black guy to play the to same just character. Keep- <laughs> and that should have been a running gag. That would have been a little bit funny. You know, next time it'll be Wesley Snipes and yeah. the IRS got Wesley. So then they got to go into like, I don't know. Uh, Sam Jackson. Sam, Nah, Sam Jackson's already Nick Fury, but they could get Michael Jai Just White. do it anyway. It won't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Save money. <laughs> there you go. And then they use a deep fake. Uh, uh, yeah. Was it James? Of Jordan Peele as Peel. President Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Playing... Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Rhodey, uh, Rhodes. <laughs> I love it. President Barack Obama is war machine. Malcolm Jamal Warner. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, can you imagine? Playing OJ. That's oh my great. gosh. That'd be wild. Yeah. So speaking of which. Who played OJ in that? It was, it was Cuba Gooding Jr. Who. That's right. He was great. Who was phenomenal in that. And that should have been a career restarter. And yeah. it started to be. And then allegations came out against him. And oh, apparently he, forgot he about pleaded that. guilty. He's okay. been, he's been a real creep for a while. Right. And this is an interesting thing because there are a couple people who owned up to what they did. Mm-hmm. I think that they were not so happy with. The shunning that still happened. For instance, Louis C.K. He tried to own up. I mean, he did. He, he owned did. up to it. And I thought that was the right move. And then he kind of accepted his 
time condemnation. Out. His timeout. His That's time a good, out. Right. He just uh, corner, he thought it was going to be a lot shorter than the world was prepared for. And maybe the world was prepared to axe him, you know, to be done with him forever. And he was definitely thinking, okay, I just have to like lay low for six months or I don't, to I don't, a year. I don't think that the world was ready to shun him. I, I don't think so either. I think, the I think world he was f***ed waiting. up by trying to come back too soon. I think he f***ed up by trying to come back too soon. And the world told him, nah, you still got to sit in time out. Right. And then he was like, fine, then I'll become a Republican. Exactly. And this that, is that's when how the world I see was like, well. you know what? You, the black community was like, you know, we are reneging your honorary black card for making Pootie Tang. That makes right. us re right. So give it over. Yeah. And he got mad. I was like, well, I'm going to go hang out with the Republicans. <laughs> yeah. When you're used to selling out stadiums and making big dollars and suddenly you're getting that stripped away from you, but you can like switch sides and go right back to it. I can see why that would be tempting. I can see why it'd be tempting, but as a minority yeah. in a variety of ways, right. I'm just kind of like, how sway? How sway? You know, that's just not the answer to me because I hate Nazis. Of like, course. Like I am. It's, it's not an option, but at least when I think of it in that context, I guess I can wrap my head around what Louis C.K. must be thinking, how he is able to justify it to himself. I don't understand his method of thinking because it was like, OK, you're cool with this large minority community as a Caucasian male. You're very successful within them. Right. To the point where you can make a movie that tackles, you know, subtle instances of race or overtly instances of race and can have stereotypes and was largely, from my experience, accepted in the black community, the people of color community in America. And then it's like, okay, he fucked up for a completely unrelated instance. Yeah. And then turned around and became the absolute worst thing to this community that literally stood by him when other communities did not. And it just kind of seems like a big fuck you. And I understand that need to be part of something. Yeah. But it's like, dude, it was six months. You'll be fine. True. Like, like if you waited, like, let's say two years. It's like, dude, you made your millions. Mm -hmm. Like, just go sit in time out. Go on vacation. Go do some ayahuasca in South America. Call up Machine yeah, Gun people Kelly. People do that yeah. all the time anyway for, you know, other reasons. Like yeah, rich people do that 24-7. You still got rich yeah. friends. They'll be like, put a bag on your head while we walk outside. Yeah. Do the Kanye West. But, you know, so you can't see us. But, I was thinking Shia LaBeouf. Do you know, that's another one who, yeah. who's been going up and down. Right. That's a that's a weird guy. Yeah, that's a and really he's weird guy. he's getting help from is he Mel Gibson? Oh, well, let's all I give think our. They, they they share religious tips or something, and oh, then you've got what is the uh, what's tips. what's that wacky church that has Justin Bieber and Kanye and is it Scientology? No, no. it's it's like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh yeah, and Marilyn Manson is there too. And Marilyn, what the fuck? So it's a lot of troubled controversial figures then why is justin bieber there <laughs> he's a vacillator a what he vacillates <laughs> he waffles what <laughs> he he goes back and forth oh okay. he's in he's in you know people waffles. people like him and then people fucks it up waffles? somehow people but hate waffles no I was about to say, I, I love waffles. Yeah, especially with chicken. Oh my God, it's great. Mm -hmm. I, I fought it for years and then I tried it. It's great. Mm -hmm. I thought sugar in your grits was a crime against humanity. And then I tried it mm -hmm. and I said, how wrong I have been. Well, see, the, the secret to cooking seems so often to be like, 
Put the opposite thing that you think should go in it. Like, if you're making cookies, put some salt in it. Exactly. If you're making spaghetti, put some sugar in it. Right. If you're making chili, put some chocolate in it. Really? Yeah, okay. well, that's the Cincinnati way. Okay. I'm going to have to try Skyline. That. I've never actually had Skyline. I've heard of it. Skyline mm-hmm. is interesting. I mean, actually, it's not that interesting. It's just kind of bad. But the Cincinnati chili <laughs> concept is a good one. So here's a fun fact. I don't like war movies. They make oh, okay. me feel weird. Yeah. Not because it's the act of war, because uh-huh. I feel like a lot of them glorify it. Even the ones that are very down and like wrong, like there's nothing good about what happens in war. It's like, yeah, but you're stylizing it. And we're watching from like this awesome cinematic experience. You know, it's meant to make us feel like shit. After we go, wow, that was oddly in a fucked up way uplifting, even if it makes me feel terrible right now. Because I'm not those people who just got all the shit that happened to them. Yeah. I mean, there is a certain element of just by depicting it, sort of promoting it. But I mean, I don't have time to worry about that as a director. Because like, if you depict something even in a negative way, someone could potentially find it romanticized. Okay. I do like war films, but they are of a particular kind. I like anti-war films. And and you're saying, to some extent, anti-war films don't achieve their aim. And you may be right, to some extent. But I particularly like the films that are hard to watch, that do not justify war, but rather highlight the inanity of it. For instance, my favorite war film ever, Come and See, is quite an experience. I've only watched it twice, and uh, I highly recommend it. came out in the 80s. I can't remember which year exactly. But it is about the Nazi treatment of an Eastern European country. I'm forgetting what. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't remember if it was Ukraine, but it's about the extermination of an entire village. Oh, um, wow. And this one kid by stroke of luck is not there when they all are killed so he lives in the aftermath of it and you kind of follow him going around sort of a beautiful ballet of horrendous things happening because people are evil and they do what they're told without question so i i do think it's very damning of the whole situation and it and it's a story that needs to be told because not to downplay the holocaust for instance mm-hmm. but we well, do ca- have a careful lot of- now because kanye made this a even more touchy subject oh, it's true so <laughs> um, i mean i i've got a an interest in holocaust movies because i find it fascinating. We have a lot of them. And it's important to remember there were other horrible atrocities, whether it was other wars, other countries involved, or in this case, it was still the Nazis. But we don't hear as often about the extermination of these Eastern European villages. So it's pretty horrendous, pretty accurate to what happened. And it's an unflinching depiction. I will say it's one of those things that's like the second time I watched it, I turned it on, mm-hmm. not knowing if I was going to actually watch it all. It's kind of like Schindler's List. It's like... I never saw Schindler's okay. List. Okay. You got to be in the right mood for sure. But once it grabs your attention, like I couldn't turn away until it was over. And some of the things you're watching, you're horrified by and you don't really want to keep watching, but you also can't turn away. So it's kind of like the precious effect is what I call it. Oh, okay. Um, I haven't seen precious. So I read the book before I saw the movie. I highly, highly recommend the book. Mm -hmm. The movie was okay in my eyes. The book was absolutely wonderful because it definitely gave light to a lot of underrepresented aspects of Black America. But that's besides the point. 
the movie is a feel bad movie. Okay, right. And it feels very down to earth. It feels very real to things people don't want to see that happens in this community. And once you watch it, you never want to see it again. And I uh-huh. feel like that's the same effect with war movies, where some of them, even the anti-war ones, where it's like, this is pointing out how horrible these atrocities are, how horrible this experience is, and how real it is. And you don't know if you want to keep watching or not. But once you're done, you're like, that's it. Right. <laughs> I, I, I've seen it. It's burned into my memory, and right. I don't ever want to see it again. And while we're on the subject it kind of makes me think of two other movies right off the bat 12 years a slave passion of the christ 12 years and was definitely uh, <laughs> was definitely or the passion of the slave is oh my gosh that's good oh and then we have blonde passion of yo maryland that was not the passion of anything that was the passion of misogyny that's what that movie was i understand what they were going for it was garbage but it did not achieve its aim in the end for me. It was really hard to get through because it was so repetitive and it daddy. Un- unrelenting. Every single scene oh, daddy. was that pivotal scene in a movie. Usually there's only one or two where everything gets really slowed down and there's a lot of space between each line. But wasn't everyone's I- hanging on every single little word like it's going to alter the entire plot. But wasn't but that I a was good girl, scene. daddy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was just, yeah, it was the same scene over and over again, just with different characters. It was three hours of- And it was three hours. Of Anna de Armas being beautiful. And she did a good job. I liked her Marilyn. It feels like everyone did a great job except for the director. Yeah, yeah, the cinematographer did great. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what is interesting? I only found out after I watched it with you Mm -hmm. that it was based on a Joyce Carol Oates novel. Yeah. I knew that it was based on a novel- yeah. I didn't know anything about the novel. I didn't know it was by Joyce Carol Oates. I really like her short stories. I've never read a novel by her, but I really like her short stories. I'm down to reading the novel with you. Apparently, this movie does a lot of liberties with that novel. But uh, also, ah, okay. I heard that the novel is not really much better in terms of its treatment of Marilyn Monroe. Sure. But, you know, if you want three hours of a uh, fictional abortion plan B propaganda, anti-abortion. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> Manifesting non-existent abortions Tra- yeah. in the history of Marilyn Monroe. That was an interesting choice. Love- that was a major element. Spoilers, sorry. Yes, yeah, spoiler alert. She's had miscarriages, but they were like, you know, we're not going to put those miscarriages in. Right. We're going to put in abortions. And that's what's going to be terrorizing her about her pregnancies. Like, Or you could use this wonderful opportunity with a phenomenal crew to call to light the pain that can come with miscarriage. You know, I wonder if it's more dramatic, I I suppose, was part of the conversation. Was it? Well, uh, I could see them thinking that way. Is it more visual? Is it more cinematic? I don't know. It could have been done so wonderfully because, you know, she's had multiple miscarriages. And from interviews that I looked up after the movie, it's all hearsay, obviously. And that was what? How many years ago? 70, 80 years ago? Uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, People have said this ate away at her. This took a toll that, right. you know, she would have miscarriages because of a underlying condition. And then they just completely decided, you know, we're not going to lean on that. We're going to make up abortions. And then have the fetus talk to her. Oh, I forgot about that part. Yeah, that was wild. And then JFK is gonna force her to have an abortion because he her. Yeah. And the Secret did not, Service. Did not put him in a very good light. No one was not in really a good anyone light. really anyone in a good light. This is true. And the director's not in a good light either. And Plan yeah. B, which is an ironic company name for this uh, film. 
it's not in a good light either. Yeah, I don't know anything about. I mean, I know Plan B from other movies. They've been around, but I don't know if you have any ties, any associations. Yeah, they produced this film. No, I know, but with oh. contraception or the after pill. I'll have to check that out. All right, so let's get back into <laughs> Away From Blonde that felt like it was written by a bunch of blondes. <laughs> um, we covered a lot of topics today. We've, we yeah, covered just bouncing around. We've just been bouncing around a lot of topics today. Hollywood. Hollywood. Me and Matt did that three times over, and it just was not yeah. working out the way I was. I wish I kept some of the previous ones, because oh, yeah. we did have some really good gold in there. Like, um, we both know that he <laughs> is not a godly person. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but Matt it had... It seems like a judgment on his moral character. I know what you mean by that. He's an atheist. Yeah, yeah. No, no. That's what I mean, is right. he's an atheist. No, right. not he's like a horrible person. No, right. he's, he's the most wonderful human being. Yes. Um, Especially for an atheist. Well, <laughs> so let's, let, let's, no, let's bring it up for a second, and then we'll get back onto like you as a director and stuff. Wouldn't atheists be like the top tier peak goodness like character wise of a person because there's no promise of anything afterwards if they're a good person and they don't believe in a god that literally means that they're being a good person for their own personal reasons. right you could say altruism is more likely to be the motivating factor in an atheist who isn't being promised rewards in the next life yeah sure i'll buy that okay okay all right, we're back on the spiel. And there's that beautiful smile of yours hey. that I get to see. Hey! All right. Um, Face for radio. Fa- <laughs> You're actually a very attractive person. No oh, homo. yes, thank you. Please, yes, that is an important detail for all of you at home trying to imagine in your heads what this <laughs> looks like. Two very gorgeous men sitting in a room with a pretty cool looking dog. Well, the dog is absolutely wonderful. They're not yeah. going to know what I look like because I have the mask. Oh, right. And the thingy. But they, they might know what you look like. Yeah, we'll, I we'll, suppose you could look me up. But if you just look up Jonathan Ott on Google, you will get the world-renowned botanist who is <laughs> like probably in his 70s now, I believe. Okay. Maybe maybe even early 80s. Does he look uh, good? He looks crazy. He, he's written... Um, Books on hallucinogenic plants of North America. Oh, wow. It was one of his more famous publications. I would love to own a book by him because it says by Jonathan Ott. You know, it's my name. I'm interested in the subject. They're out of print, which also means that if I can get one, it's this like old retro design. It's really cool. I can't find one for less than like $300. What the fuck? Why are they out of print? I don't know, but they are highly coveted. Okay. So now I'm just like... I've got to get one even more, but I don't know. That's that capitalism in you. It's it's entitlement. I feel like literally that I'm entitled. It's my name on there. I have to have it. I feel like appealing to one of these eBay salesmen being like, look, my name is Jonathan Ott. Doesn't that give me like 50% off? (laughs) You know, I I dare you to try it. You might as well. You might as well. The worst they can say is go f*** yourself, hunt you down, scalp you. Maybe not 50%. But, (laughs) or they could say yes, or a simple no. It's $300. Maybe I go for something realistic. It's like, I'm willing to take the plunge. I may as well also mention, by the way. I'm his grandson. I'm his grandson. Then they'll, see, then then they'll be like, what the My parents are estranged. Yeah. With my and maybe that's the route I should take. Maybe I should just approach Jonathan Ott and say, hey, I know you have a box of these laying around in your basement. I dare you. Yeah. I dare you. I absolutely 
I should before he. he dies because he he is getting on. Do it tomorrow. Takes five ten minutes. No, to I got to word email. it. I got to word it correctly. I can just email him. I need to get it into his hands. I need it. I needed to get to him for real. This sounds like a plot of your next movie. Could be a road Looking. trip documentary. You could film it like a road trip documentary. One of my favorite road trip documentaries. Gosh, I can't. I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> but it's called Searching for Blank Blank. Her name. Basically, the premise of the documentary was that she was going to find people with her name. Oh, I know what you're talking about. All yeah. across the country. And she was going to go and interview them. And lo and behold, it becomes a documentary about abuse, molestation. Basically, all of these women had been abused in some way. I know exactly what you're talking about. Never saw it. Yeah. Definitely on my radar. It's an amazing I heard it's absolutely phenomenal. We're going to find out what it's called for the the audience. We're going to find this out right now. This kind of sounds like into the multiverse of madness. Oh, okay. Because it's like, oh, yeah, all the other versions of me live this life. That's an interesting But I'm the one nexus event that it did not happen to. That's a cool perspective on it she's like wanda that. maximoff you know we always look at movies where it's like oh you're the most least interesting version of yourself in all the multiverses but we never look at one where it's you're the most interesting version of yourself in all the multiverses hmm. and all the other ones it's just one nightmare after another that you could know? be a, a new take on the old uh, it's a wonderful life or even a christmas carol with scrooge both those stories they're basically presented with things that make them have a change of heart and appreciate the things that they have. And you could do that with a multiverse narrative where they basically think their life is so shit. And then they look in all the other dimensions and they're like, wow, this is the best possible outcome with these genes, this nurture <laughs> and, and nature. Turns out like I'm in the actually the best possible dimension. Right. All my uh, counterparts are worse off than they are pathetic bastards. And- it's like this one cleans dogs for a living. Yeah. And this one over here, it overdosed and I, I don't know. Yeah. This one was Stormy Daniels. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, this one's married to Tom Cruise. It's like, <gasps> that's the most frightening <laughs> one. <laughs> oh, God, I feel more delirious than my cousin, Stewie Cruise. I'm in love with Katie Holmes! I'm in love with Katie Holmes! Searching for Angela Shelton. Searching for Angela Shelton. Directed by Angela Shelton. Directed by Angela Shelton. That's right. All right. Yeah, so she she goes traveling around talking to various women named Angela Shelton, and it becomes evident pretty quickly that they all share something in common. They've all been abused by someone. And a lot of times it was a husband or a father, and her own issues come to surface. She never intended it necessarily to be a part of her documentary. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes clear to her that her road trip will end with a confrontation with her father, who she doesn't speak with anymore. Because he abused her as well? Because he sexually molested her and her brother and sister. Oh, what the f***? Okay. Wow. It's a heavy film. That is a very, very heavy film. But an important watch. Absolutely recommend 10 out of 10. Yeah. See, I I work on a four-star system. Four-star? Why not five-star? I don't need a fifth one. Okay. I can fit every movie I watch into the four-star system. Does a zero-star count as well? Not really, no. That would be almost like I literally can't make 
anything, like heads or tails okay. from this. That's but it. I've never given a, a zero. A one star is a total waste of time, total trash, okay. worthless. Two stars is some redeemable qualities. Three stars is mostly successful in whatever their aim was. Because I try to take that into consideration. What were they trying to be? Okay. Four stars is solid, impressive achievement. All right. So we're back on to films about you. Where are you going to go next in terms of writing movies? You say, uh, we do know that you filmed the first part of Bluffing. That's right. As a first timer, as a directing virgin, what was that like? Well, it was a dream come true in most ways. My it, first time it was honestly, <laughs> it ended up being quite a, a lot like what I imagined it would be. Uh, it was overwhelming at times. Mm-hmm. It was a dream come true in a very good way. I felt the fruits of collaboration were present. I thought that was really important. I wanted to open myself to suggestions and collaborating with all these creative people that I had gathered around me. And I think that that worked really well. And there were some things that I I wasn't sure of how it would turn out. For instance, just being gun shy, I was I was worried that I might be indecisive mm-hmm. when, uh, you know, time is money, especially on a film set. You've got this crew who are all there making not a lot of money on my movie, to be honest, because I had a lot of people who were uh, volunteering their time. So kudos mm-hmm. to them. Shout out to them. It's important to keep things moving and you don't have a lot of time to be idle or to go off and think things over and turn it over in your head a little while. Um, you don't have that luxury. And luckily, I found that uh, when things were moving and decisions needed to be made, I had a pretty clear idea of what I wanted uh, every time. And when what I wanted wasn't going to work and someone had an alternative method, it wasn't too hard to realize that and be like, yeah, you're right. Okay. I don't need to waste time being sad about the fact that it's not going to look just like I had thought in my head. We're moving on. Okay. Yeah, it was it was a great experience. I've learned a, a lot from it already that I will be able to apply uh, hopefully in the in the second shoot, which will wrap us up. I know also that I will be a more, I, I hesitate to say better, but definitely a more prepared screenwriter after this, knowing what considerations I had to make when adapting it to the screen. I can make a lot of those decisions in the screenwriting process now. Okay. Hi-ho, Kermit the Frog here. I'm, I'm not going to forgive you for not doing the whole interview in a Kermit the Frog voice. I, I, yeah, I would never have agreed to that. Maybe. Do you do that during sex? Maybe Gollum. I do Gollum Please don't do Gollum. You Please, don't like it? In high school, there was this kid. Oh, who triggers. always, not even just triggers, it's just he, I had enough Gollum for a whole lifetime. Yeah, I, I get it. It can get old. It, it got old real quick. <laughs> real quick. Who was that? Who was that? I don't know. That's just, I guess, my serious voice. We oh, also just watched that. It's movie like your Batman. It's your your Bateman. Batman. Where is he? Yeah, Bateman Batman, which which is a prequel to Batman Begins. Yeah, he was a piece of shit he psychopath. Was Patrick on, Bateman, American Psycho. I mean, Batman is a schizophrenic. That's right. Playboy, born into wealth, and who has secret violent nights. In, in the same way that American Psycho, you don't know necessarily what is real and what isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, some people ascribe to the idea that. All the murders were in his head. I personally don't think that's true because it makes the movie less fun. True. 
And it takes the punch out of so many of the scenes that, that the are only interesting. It's like when he goes back to the apartment. Mm-hmm. Where he, it's, it's Paul Allen's apartment and he's committed multiple murders there and he's made a terrible mess mm-hmm. and he stops in to do God knows what. And suddenly the place is clean. All the walls have been whitewashed and there's a realtor there showing the place to some potential renters. Basically, he talks to the real estate agent and she's like, did you see the ad in the times? And he's like, yes, that's, that's right. I saw the ad in the times. And she's like, there was no ad in the times. And she's like, you should just go and don't ever come back. And he's like, okay, I will. I'm gone. Now, if he didn't commit any murders, then that scene has no, no power to it. to it at all. It just means that this weird lady acted weird to him for no really good reason. And maybe she's just a bitch. Yeah, maybe she's just a bitch. But, you know, I liked the point that was being made, which was if this woman went to the police, she would not be able to rent this apartment. Right. So she just cleaned it up and mm-hmm. told him to get lost mm-hmm. because she wants her cut. It has nothing to do with justice. It has to do with her selfish capitalist motives. Right. That is a great message from that scene. And you wouldn't have that if he never actually committed the murders. Exactly. And I mean, it even goes back into spoiler alert. I'm really glad that that chamomile is waking you up because this is what I'm talking about. This is the John Ott that I wanted y'all to meet. (laughs) But it's like the very end where he sits down and he thinks everybody knows. Everybody knows about these murders he committed. Nothing changes. Well, right. No he goes one. He goes up to his lawyer. Right. And his lawyer like, has confessed to. And we, we saw that in, early, in an earlier scene where he gets him right. on the phone and he leaves a message and confesses to all the murders. And it's hilarious. And he even says, you know, I even ate some of their brains. I even cooked a little. Uh, Did he yeah. eat their brains in it? Not in the movie. Okay. Uh, in the book. But he taught. Yeah. In the book. And then and he talks about it in that in that confession. But then when he runs into his lawyer at the end of the movie, his lawyer lawyer doesn't know who he is. And that's another theme throughout, which is these people don't his care. Desire, well, his desire to fit in and all of their in this society, they all want to look like the same thing. I love the commentary in the fact that he tries to confess to these murders. And it's not that he gets away because he hasn't actually committed them and they're just in his head. He gets away with it because everyone's profiting off of him. Well, because nobody even knows who anyone is. They're constantly mistaking people for other people. He poses as Paul Allen after he kills Paul Allen. His own lawyer doesn't recognize him. All these people look identical and they keep mistaking each other for each other. And so it's kind of a perfect alibi that he can't get caught even when he's trying to get caught. And that's, you know, whether it's the uniformity of the yuppie culture, and I think that's part of it, or it's just being born into privilege because I don't know how much the movie, I don't think the movie really goes into it, but he, he's born into well, money. Patrick doesn't really do a whole lot. He's not smart. He just has subtle. money. Yeah. It's subtle because a lot of people who are at the top of the chain really are not that much smarter than You're the right. people below them. Right. They just, they just got lucky, A, yes. and B, they were privileged and lucky enough to be born right. in a timeline where things worked out. And it's interesting because Patrick seems to be both perfectly cut out for this role and also not cut out for the role because he has to fake it. A lot of his friends, while they are terribly phony, I think that they show their true emotions a lot more than Patrick, who is constantly just regurgitating things he's read, whether he's regurgitating restaurant reviews mm-hmm. or album reviews. You know, he goes on at length about Whitney Houston, about 
Phil Collins, he doesn't seem to have his own thoughts. He just regurgitates what everyone else what likes. Else li- yeah. He, and, and yes, that's exactly right. Whether it's the Les Mis poster over his toilet, Les Mis comes up a lot in the book. They're just constantly going and seeing it. Not because they like Anne Hathaway talking about how <laughs> she had to, what, she cut off her hair so she could eat, but then she dies anyway. That's some, or, yeah, I think. Or was it the consumption? That's basically the, the blurb on the back of the DVD box. Yeah. I've never seen Les Mis. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it either. And I haven't seen that version also. Which I guess is obvious. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, he, he loves commercialism. He loves commercials. He'd probably be like Tom from Parks and Rec. His favorite part of TV is the commercials. Because um, it's short. He loves capitalism. He loves being told what opinion to have. He even spells it out at one point to his girlfriend um, when, when they're in the limousine. And he's like, I, I just want to fit in. That really have it all be a dream that I think really points to the fact that he's a sociopath Mm -hmm. and that he is observing and imitating what everyone else is doing around him because he doesn't have the emotions himself. And that leads him to being a textbook CEO and a textbook serial killer. It's funny how his only real form of identity is in his actual serial killings. Yeah, um, it seems to be the only true thing that he does. But even that, you're right. There is creativity. Like he, like, like the part where he holds the, um, nail gun. The nail gun. There we go. He's like, you're going to get nailed. And she's thinking that's going to be a great time. Yeah. She's, and then she realized it's gonna not going to be a great time and not in the thing the way we initially thought. Like normally it's like he said he was going to nail me and it right. wasn't good. You're like, oh, he's a sexual predator. Right. Worse. He's literally meaning you're going to get nailed, bitch. Yeah. Like he gets creative with it. You see him ponder throughout the scene. Does he do it on the couch? Does he chase her down the hallway? How is this going to play out? And that's the only time Patrick Bateman has any kind of real character. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Self um, And that's also that's also pretty typical of what I understand serial killers are like. You know, we see Patrick drawing pictures of the things that he did the night before. And we know that serial killers a lot of times keep journals and take Polaroids and things of this nature. And definitely think Patrick shows those elements. So yeah, it's like the, the most truthful part of him is the killer inside. I think that's true. So once again, if you take that part out and you think that it's all in his head, it's just not as interesting of a film. The message isn't as strong. So I think it's weird that people think that. How did we ever get on American Psycho? I don't know how we got here to American Psycho, but you're passionate about it. So I was like, you know, well, it's my favorite movie. I didn't know that. Yeah. Why haven't you told me this? I don't know. It's a movie a lot of people have seen. So it's not like news. Uh, Yeah, I find it fascinating. I love the director, Mary Heron. She's incredible. Wait, a woman directed it? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's part of the what makes this movie so interesting. I've read the book by Brett Easton Ellis. I love his books. It's not my favorite by him, but it is remarkable in a lot of ways. It's tough. I read it when I was in high school and it's a tough book to get through. Mm -hmm. Some of it is pretty damn sadistic. It got a lot of controversy and then um, fast forward to it being adapted. And I have to believe that uh, it was a very strategic thing getting a female to direct it. Okay. Because it, the book had already come under so much from misogyny, negative press but for, for misogyny. Yeah. So it was smart and it paid off because Mary Heron was absolutely the right director to do it. I'm trying to think she had, I think only one movie before under her credit, which was how I shot. No, it's I shot Andy Warhol. No, no, how just I, I shot Andy Warhol. I think I've heard of this. Yeah, it's great. Not gonna lie, a little self-conscious now that you're on this whole 
pretending to be somebody kind of thing. <laughs> no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I do not see any similarities between me and Patrick Bateman. Um, no, no. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's Killmonger from Black Panther. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I'm joking. But now that I know this, I have a question. Uh-huh. How does this play into bluffing? How does this influence bluffing? Because, for example, you know for a fact that I've started writing things. I'm learning how to do screenwriting. That's why I have screenwriters for dummies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, I know that my personal favorite songs, my pers- of personal favorite directors, Quentin Tarantino, I'm very big into dialogue. Right. So I'm researching on how to do better dialogue. How does Mary Harron influence bluffing, if she does in mm-hmm. any capacity? Because your story is kind of similar in a, in a sense of it's dealing with trying to fit in, you know, it deals with serial killer. It deals with, you know, all that jazz. Right. I would definitely say that in a, in a broad sense, American Psycho, by becoming my favorite movie, it introduced me to the charms of dark comedy and that I've been a fan of dark comedy uh, ever since and horror comedy as well. So yeah, in that way, it kind of set me down the path to wanting to this make dark way. comedies. I've made two short films before this, and they are both horror spoofs, I guess you could say. And that's not often what I intend to do. It's not what I intended my career to look like, but it just kind of happens that way. And it's probably because I ingest mostly horror comedy films. Definitely a good chunk of it is horror, and then a good chunk of those horror films is comedic. I mean, some of the best movies... Oh, yeah. I feel our horror comedies look at Malignant. I don't give a fuck there what anybody go. says. Malignant was great. That was I the best it. movie of 2020. Yeah. If you're in on the joke, it's a lot of fun. And <laughs> some people just like dollars. refuse to be in on the joke. I don't know. They're just like, we're only going to take it seriously and be mad about it. But it was $45 million of James Wan just being like, I can do anything because I made Warner Brothers a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's a clever idea. But there would, there would be no executing it without camp. I feel like he probably had this idea and was holding on to it. I could just imagine, who knows if he did it this way, I could just imagine myself having this concept and being like, I'm not sure how to sell it. It's so good. It's so clever in a way, but it's also so silly. Like, what is the degree of seriousness? Can you, can you actually sell it seriously? Thank God he realized, no, we no. have to, we have to do this <laughs> no with camp, way. but it's still genuinely disturbing. It's still a good twist. I saw it coming, but even when I thought, even when I figured it out, I was like, no, no, no. Even when I figured it out, I was like, if that's not it, I'm going to be mad because that is great. That is perfect. (laughs) And then I was very happy that I was right. I had no idea where that movie was going. I just knew like I was one of those people where I was like, now why the fuck are you parking so close to the damn cliff? I said, no one parks that close, let alone driving a Prius in the middle of the night, four inches away from a cliff edge. And then the whole fake out where like, okay, she's looking for these papers. Cool. She's in a creepy asylum. And you're thinking this is where we're going to find the scary. That's the only moment in the movie where nothing happens. Oh, right. But the rest of the movie is, spoiler alert, people running backwards and people people going, oh, no, I I miscarried. And then you find out, no, it's your twin brother who's a cancer tumor (laughs) in the back of your head coming out. So good. You know, completely fucking up a random 70s black chick and Zoe Bell (laughs) from Queen Tarantino's stunt crew. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She's Forgot great. She in it. Yeah. I love I love Zoe Bell. But Yeah, it had a sort of even though it was, it was a, a very expensive movie, and I'm glad it was, because it looks gorgeous. It does look gorgeous. But it definitely <laughs> has a sort of B grade, like 
you know, exploitation level of film. But it reminded me a lot of the art design of Suspiria, the colors and, and whatnot. That was really fun. And that's not necessarily a low-budget look. That's, no, the monotone, uh, it's oversaturated. A lot of, yeah, oversaturated, uh, primary colors. Blue. Um, but it works so well. And I think it also helps to set the tone once again, because Argento's work is often gorgeous and often scary and often fun, but it's also often silly and campy. And so it was a perfect marriage. I thought it was a great decision to use Argento-inspired palette. So let's look into the future because you can't really say much about bluffing. And you have a real, pa- like, obviously you have passion for, you know, the art of film. Otherwise you mm-hmm. want to be a director, but that is such a large visual art form that's okay. like and what i mean by that is the spectrum between you know the different genres and how those genres have subgenres, and then how yeah. those subgenres have special styles depending on the era or the reflection of it you know the same thing with paintings like if it's moving with all of that knowledge and that passion for all of this because you are a real artist like you also can draw beautifully how do you, oh, yeah, thank you plan to translate that in the future what would your ultimate movie look like in the terms of horror and comedy with your knowledge of the history and the foundations of visual art of film every artist or director has that one movie or that one painting that they want to be like this is what i want to be known for this is my dream project there we go that's the word dream project seth mcfarland's was american dad fox told him no okay he made family guy family guy succeeded failed succeeded again so then he was granted american dad mm-hmm. and you can clearly see that is his go-to project quentin tarantino Kill Bill was it for the longest time. It was Kill Bill. It's always been Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. What's yours? I guess what comes to mind immediately is uh, I love the play Peer Gent by Henrik Ibsen. And it's not often staged anymore because it's got a bunch of crazy different locations and a lot of people. Not like it would be impossible, though, but that's what I've been told, actually, is that it's just too hard to put on. It's got mountains. It's got a wedding party. But... It's not inconceivable, but it's a fantastic play just to read. And it's unfortunate that there isn't a great film adaptation. There's one in black and white with a very young Charlton Heston, and it's actually just a recording of the play being put on. It's not that great. It's the black and white version Um, of Hamilton, no pun intended. (laughs) So, yeah, um, I've always wanted to stage that. Well, not stage it. I've always wanted to film it. I've always wanted to adapt it. And of course, I don't want to just adapt it as it is written. I have to do something fun. So I want to modernize it, and I want to overlay it with a story that basically the story of a good friend of mine who I knew in Portland, Oregon, and who got dosed with some bad acid and ended up losing his mind for over a year, I want to say. Maybe it wasn't quite that long. Anyway, in and out of psych wards, and, you know, he was a roommate, and just a lot of crazy shit went down, and thankfully, he came back to us, and he's got a lovely family now. But I've always kind of thought that that would make an interesting overlay with the Peer Gent story. If you've read Peer Gent, you may know what I'm talking about. It's a pretty psychedelic kind of story, especially for its time. It incorporates a lot of Scandinavian folklore. So um, some weird creatures. The Hall of the Mountain King is the most famous musical piece that was written for it. Written by Edvard Grieg. Okay. Bum, 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 
So that is about the troll king who lives in the mountain. Troll in the dungeon! Troll in the dungeon! Thought you ought to know. It's a great play with a lot of cool creatures. He's a total rapscallion. It's a very picaresque kind of tale. Picaresques, uh, like Don Quixote, oftentimes are sort of episodic, and they may seem like a coming of age, but in fact, the main character often does not go through a change. They stay uh-huh. simply uh, as they are, and it's usually some sort of ignorance or selfishness that they portray. They often get in their own way, for sure. Another example might be Ignatius in Confederacy of Dunces. It's a sort of modern-day picaresque. Anyway, so Peer Gint is just this great play, and I would like to put it on, and I would like to introduce that other element, and also make it a shout-out to Portland, Oregon, and maybe even shoot it in beautiful black and white. I just know that I don't have the budget for that, but that could be my magnus opus at some point. Okay, okay. I even have a name for it, Twitty. I like that. Leave you with that. Well, thank you, John. We're definitely going to have you back on. Great. Either right before or right after the second half of the shoot for bluffing. Okay, great. Probably after. (laughs) And then, you know, unless you just want to pop in some other time. Yeah. But this was really good. Everybody, this has been another episode of Fajalas featuring... Jonathan Ott. We have his information posted in the link. Check the bios. Check all that good, good, that good shit, that good kush, that loud. And uh, definitely follow him. Keep a lookout for bluffing because Mr. Ott's hometown of Louisville is starting to make measures to bring up and coming artists into the limelight. And this is someone who is very promising. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you for coming on. and today we'll be talking about music and lay motifs. Now, you may be wondering, why on planet Earth are we talking about lay motifs? They're not even that important, and to that I say no. Why? Let me tell you. It's a calm day in the Mushroom Kingdom in the game Mario 64. Mario, the player's main character, is going to save Princess Peach from the wicked and nasty King Koopa Bowser. Now, it's important to note that all three of these characters have their own lay motifs. Mario's goes, Peach's is usually, and Bowser's is. Again, you may be thinking, okay, sure, they have their own signature few knows, but what does this actually have to do with the actual games? And to that, I say a lot. Audio in games is practically essential, and that means it's essential to the story as well. Let's say Mario is about to fight Bowser. In the background, Bowser's theme would ominously play as he monologues. Not only does the ominous music enhance the tone and mood of the room and make it very clear that Bowser is the antagonist, but Bowser's leitmotif lets you know, hey, 
The giant turtle is the bad guy. Smack him silly. Not only the scary scenes are affected though. Ever gone through levels in the classic Mario with an upbeat tune in the background that symbolizes Mario? Or maybe the castle theme with Peach? But the biggest thing of all is the recognition. If you hear some generic song that's unpopular, chances are you won't recognize it. However, you hear the lay motif of a character you like and all of a sudden you know it's related to that character because you've associated the lay motif with the character repeatedly through video games and media. It's like how you associate Imperial March with Darth Vader. The Simpsons theme with the Simpsons family. No matter what, lay motifs have been a big part of audio and games, shows, and music. Without them, not only would characters not have a proper way to recognize them, but they would also be potentially confused on what role they play. Well, it was nice talking to you about this. I'm Sammy at the Boombox, and I'll see you next time. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to Across the Circus. I'm your host, Alex Hopper, as always. I want to thank you all for a wonderful 2022, and I want to thank Stephen for the opportunity to be doing this show with all of you. And I look forward to what 2023 has to bring us. And without further ado, into the news of the world. Starting on a lighter note, Argentina won the World Cup, winning a penalty shot against France during their tied game 3-3. It is the third time that the country has won the World Cup, the last times being in 78 and 86. Our next story is an update from Ukraine, coming from the BBC, where Russia has fired 69 more missiles into Ukraine, and the air defense system of Ukraine only intercepted 54 of them. Many have been transported to hospitals, with the hostility still continuing. Our next story comes from U.S. News, where China sails warships near Guam in warning to U.S. over Taiwan. Japanese and U.S. forces had to respond to Chinese presence near Guam, where China has been making threats towards the U.S. if they choose to have any involvement in the fight over Taiwan. And our final story from abroad today is over the lockdowns and protests that have been continuing in China. Footage has come out of people being welded in their homes, as well as locked in cages and camps, where the only access they have to the outside world is a small box at which food is able to slide through. Footage has also come out of these camps that people are being stored in, catching fire and burning to the ground. Whether anyone was inside or not is still unknown and unconfirmed by the Chinese state. In response to all of this, Chinese citizens have been taking to the streets and clashing with police and have also been fired upon with gas and bullets as of late. World leaders from across the world have come out in support of the Chinese citizens' protests, while the Chinese citizens call for the downfall of the CCP and the tearing down of Xi Jinping. And now, for something closer to home. Following Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, he has released files showing FBI involvement with the Twitter platform. This involved paid partnerships to suppress certain 
certain stories on their site, including the Hunter Biden laptop story. There are still ongoing arguments as to if this was ethical or if it was even legal for the FBI to do. However, there is still large criticisms over the validity of these claims, even though they come from internal documents. Following the meltdown of the scam site FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried has been arrested in the Bahamas and brought to the U.S. He is expected to testify before Congress, as well as possibly facing charges himself on money laundering and fraud. Our last story today from home is an update in the Ohio stabbing of Kaylee Goncavs, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. The four university students were stabbed in their home, and authorities have been looking for any information leading to an arrest. The Pennsylvania State Police and the FBI were able to track down Brian Koberger, who was the lead suspect in this investigation. Koberger lived in Pullman, Washington, which is only a 15-minute drive from where the four students were stabbed. This has been the January 2023 issue of Across the Circus. Thank you all for a wonderful year, and I look forward to what this year will bring. Stay informed, stay safe, and remember to turn off the stove before you go to bed. This has been Alex Hopper. to this episode if you like what you've been hearing on this podcast we invite you to submit a rating on whatever you're listening to this episode on if the app you're listening to this on doesn't have a rating system just leave one on itunes this helps the podcast so very much besides word of mouth it is another way to potentially attract new listeners we want new listeners right the higher the rating the more likely people will give this podcast a chance so please make sure you rate us everywhere you listen to out of place Please also show some love to all of our wonderful hosts you've heard today. If you want to contact them, all you got to do is just click the link below. Show them some love. If you would like to listen to this episode uncensored, check us out on YouTube. Remember, God put you on this earth for a specific purpose. You have a divine destiny with unlimited potential. To our loyal listeners who made it to the end, we love you. We appreciate you. Goodbye. And always remember to smile.